Welcome to episode 323 of the Thinking Poker Podcast from Owings Mills, Maryland. I'm Andrew Brokus. I'll be doing your intro and strategy segment solo, and then I will be joined by Nate Mavis in Melrose, Massachusetts, and also by our guest, Dick Carson. Some of you may recognize the name Dick Carson. We actually recorded our longest interview ever with Dick back in 2018. You can listen to that on episodes 248, 249, and 250 if you want the full Dick Carson experience. And uh, well, it's a lot more than an introduction, but um, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of an overview of who he is. Um, he's an old school poker player and you know gambling slash Las Vegas personality. He was a Texas road gambler uh, back in the era of you know Doyle Brunson and those characters, and he's got some stories from that era. Uh, he was also a pool hustler, although we don't get into a whole lot of that here, but um, when, in the earlier interview with him, you can hear some of those stories. Uh, he was perhaps the largest bookie in Las Vegas in the 1980s, had some run-ins with um, characters that you may recognize from the movie Casino. Uh, again, a lot of that story is told back on episodes 248 through 250. Um, we just wanted to catch up with him and hear more of his stories. It's been two years since we spoke to him, and he did not disappoint. A lot of interesting stuff coming up in this episode, including a possible origin story. Obviously nothing that we can verify, but possible origin story for the idea of a clock, of putting a timer on people because of uh, the speed with which they are making, or rather not making, their decisions. Dick's got a uh, compelling story for the origin of that. So definitely encourage you to stick around. I think Dick is one of the most unique uh, guests that we've had on the show. Our goal has always been to try to bring you stories that you won't hear elsewhere in poker media. And, you know, sometimes we do that and sometimes we don't. Obviously, we've had plenty of guests on this show who you do hear elsewhere in poker media. But I think Dick Carson is a great example of someone who's full of stories to tell and uh, you're not going to hear from him anywhere else. So I hope that you will stick around and enjoy that. What else do I hope you would do? Well, you can check out www.nitcast.com, N-I-T-C-A-S-T.com. That's the place to get the Weekend Warrior Premium podcasts. Those are pure strategy from Nate and myself. We've got ones geared towards cash gameplay, ones geared towards tournament play, uh, all of them with the serious amateur player in mind. The person who, you know, poker is not a full-time job for you, but you take it seriously, you want to do well at it. And we talk about the most common misunderstandings we see in that player pool, some of the things that we think you should prioritize in your studying, and how you should be thinking in the modern era of poker. There's other stuff there as well. You can pick up uh, books from Nate and myself, other premium podcasts that we've done. 
Uh, speaking of books, my uh, sequel to Play Optimal Poker, uh, which focuses on range construction, is coming along very nicely. I've basically finished a final draft of it, hope to have it out uh, early to mid-May. Just have now some uh, beta readers looking through it, uh, helping me to put finishing touches on it, eliminate as many typos as we can, and I hope to have it out and in your hands soon. Today's strategy segment, actually, uh, I chose because it intersects with a lot of concepts from Play Optimal Poker 2, and in fact, I think also deals with some concepts from Play Optimal Poker that are more thoroughly explained in the um, in the sequel. So I think we're going to address some things related to polarized and condensed ranges in the strategy segment that uh, I do not fully get into those details in the original Play Optimal Poker, and there is a lot more about them in the sequel. So you can consider this a nice preview for that book. Uh, finally, to support the podcast, would encourage you to sign up using our affiliate code for uh, Range Trainer Pro and or Learn Pro Poker. Range Trainer Pro is, well, it's a range trainer. It is an app that enables you to uh, drill your preflop ranges and make sure that you are tight, uh, not tight in the sense of folding a lot, tight in the sense of precise on what hands you want to be playing in what scenarios preflop. You can sign up for that at thinkingpoker.net slash RTP for Range Trainer Pro. Also, Learn Pro Poker, which is a training site from former podcast guest Ryan LaPlante. Uh, I've been watching those videos. I find them very useful. I would recommend them to you as well. I think Ryan's way of thinking and playing dovetails nicely with my own. If you find uh, my stuff compelling, I think you will like Ryan as well. And you can sign up for that thinkingpoker.net slash LPP for Learn Pro Poker. So our strategy segment, this hand is coming to us from Shane. Shane writes, this is from a six max no limit hold'em tournament on America's card room. We're in the money about 50 left from a starting field of 380. I'm in the hijack with 57 blinds and the villain is the big blind who slightly covers me with 63 blinds. I raise the two and a half blinds with nine eight of diamonds. Villain defends his big blind. Flop is king of hearts, eight of spades, jack of hearts. Our hero again is holding nine eight of diamonds. I'm going to read you the entire email and then I'll go back through and zoom in on some points that I want to discuss in more detail. So. As the preflop raiser, this favors my range much more than the big blind. I can have kings, jacks, eights, aces, king, jack, and probably jack eight suited. I also have all the draws, not flush draw, combo draws, straight draws. Villain's range in the blind is wide. He doesn't have the top sets, can certainly have all the draws, including the nut flush draw. Villain donks for 1.5 blinds, which is a quarter of the pot. My general read is that this small donk bet is usually a hand wanting to see a cheap draw or a weak top pair. Skilled players will, of course, be balanced and bet two pair in sets, but being unbalanced in this spot is common at these low stakes tournaments. So, in my Nate voice, do I want to have a raising range? Yes, yes I do. Should 9-8 be in that raising range? Ah, here's where I'm really not sure. Some villains will shove their draws, successfully pushing me off my weak holding. My hand has showdown value. My raising range should include middle and bottom sets, two pair, ace-king, the nut flush draw, and combo draws. Do I need to add bottom pair into that mix? 
Given how wet the board is and how many draws I can be raising, it feels excessive to also raise bottom pair. I have other candidates. I could also raise my heir, 6-7 suited or lower pocket pairs, for example. I already have a lot of raises here and certainly a lot of value too, so there's ample opportunity to take a polarizing path. Given how many other raises I have at my disposal, I decided to just call and see a cheap turn. I have showdown value and can rep plenty of other things should the opportunity present itself. By not raising, I am choosing to put myself into a condensed range. Is it accurate to say that? I have the nuts advantage, but we both have all the draws. Also, I guess I should at least consider folding, although given how cheap the bet is, I am getting favorable immediate odds to improve with five outs. So no. We go to the turn. 9.2 blinds in the pot, and see the inconsequential four of diamonds. So the board now, king of hearts, eight of spades, jack of hearts, four of diamonds, our hero holding nine eight of diamonds. Villain makes another small bet, 2.5 blinds into 9.2 blinds. Nothing has changed from the flop, so I think the previous discussion still applies. I have a bluff catcher. He could be betting plenty of draws, which I beat. The board texture hasn't changed, so he is still betting the polarized range, albeit at a small size. Should I be folding a portion of my flop calling range on the turn? I suppose under pairs to the board would be in that range and could be folded. Maybe even pocket nines or tens, which block his draws. I guess by that reasoning, 8-9 does a little bit as well, but it is still so cheap. I'm getting 4.7 to 1, so I call. The river is somewhat exciting, the jack of spades. No draws complete, but the jack pairs the board. Villain checks. I feel like I've been playing my hand just like I would a jack. I now have the opportunity to bet a polarized range, but should I? I can see him checking his missed draws at this point, thinking the jack is my most likely holding and will certainly call. I don't think he rates to have very many jacks in his hand. So I'm looking to fold out a king. There are 20 blinds in the pot and I now have 47 in my stack. A bet of 12 to 15 would probably get the job done. Then again, some players, especially at low levels, are reluctant to ever fold top pair, even with no kicker, and will just close their eyes and call. Hard to say about this player. I'm beating a large portion of his range. Should I make the just-in-case bet? What are my other bluffing candidates? I guess it depends on where I put my draws. Earlier I wrote that draws should go into the polarized raising range on the flop, but here at the river I contradicted myself and reasoned that I would have missed draws to bluff. Or even worse, villain may think that I have a lot of missed draws to bluff and therefore call. Perhaps the solution is to put something like ace of hearts in the calling range and then use that as a bluff candidate on the river, but raise the 10-9 suited and queen-10 suited of the world on the flop as they lack showdown value. But now I'm saying to bluff the ace high on the river because it lacks showdown value. Sorry, I'm thinking myself in circles a bit here. In the end, I chicken out and check back. Partly I want to see his hand. Information is typically far more valuable to me than to my opponents. Still, this probably was my get out of jail free card. He shows down king seven of clubs and takes the pot. Sigh. I'm focused on how I think an eight should be played here in an equilibrium strategy. But is there a case for exploit? Is bluffing everything on the river exploitative? I think back to what Tommy Angelo said in one of the podcasts. If they're folding even a little bit too often, you should go all the way and bluff everything you've got. Okay, let's go through this, not quite point by point, but zooming in on the points that I think are worthwhile. So pre-flop I think is trivial, definitely want to be opening 9-8 suited in this spot. Um, so we go to the flop and it is king-jack-8 with two hearts, none of our suit and we're holding 9-8 suited. The villain donks for a quarter pot, and Shane says, 
Uh, as the preflop raiser, this favors my range much more than the big blind. I have uh, you know, kings, jacks, eights, aces, king, jack, jack, eight suited. I think that's true. Um, that What that tells us is that you should be the player driving the action on this board. Um, probably the villain is making a mistake having, I mean, just in general, as the preflop raiser, you typically should be the player driving the action. There's good reason why we commonly check to the raiser. Um, there are some exceptions. I doubt this board is one of them, and most people make more mistakes trying to find the exceptions and be better off just like checking their range to the preflop raiser. So probably the villain is making a mistake in doing something exploitative here by betting at all. That's the main implication of you know saying that you have all these nutty hands in in your range. The the villain in general he has the more condensed range, both you know, because he doesn't three bet pre flop, and then this flop doesn't really change things. He has the more condensed range. He mostly his range wants to be keeping the pot small. You have the range that wants to be doing a lot of betting. You happen to have a hand that does not particularly want to. Um, to play a large pot. You know, many of your hands, as you as you point out, are either going to be so strong that they want to play a large pot, or they're going to be so weak that they want to represent strength and try to get folds. You have a tricky hand, um, as, as I think you know our, our correspondent identifies. You know, he has a tricky hand because his hand is like has some showdown value, but not a lot. It's like kind of a candidate for bluffing. When it does have showdown value, it's vulnerable, and so it's tempting to you know raise and try to like push the villain off of his equity. I think Shane's asking a lot of the right questions here. And I guess he, to, to note a few more of his questions, he goes on to say, because the villain donks for quarter pot, and he says, um, given how wet the board is and how many draws I can be raising, it feels excessive to also raise bottom pair. I have other candidates, I can raise my heir. Um, and I think that's the right way to think about it. You know, to recognize, yes, you do want to have a raising range here. Um, and then you know, the question of does this hand belong in your raising range, I think we have very little incentive to raise this exact hand. Uh, and, and one way to identify this is to ask yourself, what would you be looking to accomplish by raising this? Like, what, so I, mean, I guess the, the first thing is we're not really expecting to be ahead if he calls the raise. So we don't want to be thinking of it as like a value raise where we think, oh, my hand is, you know, I, I have a good hand, so I want her to raise it to make the pot larger. Like that's not, that's not the case. We do not. We don't have a hand that wants to play a large pot or is going to expect to win a large pot with its showdown value. So we're not raising really for value. We don't have a value target. I think some people might make the mistake here of saying, "Oh, he could have a draw. I'd like to raise into a draw." I don't think you do really want to raise into a draw. Um, as Shane points out, a draw might just shove on you, which would be a disaster because now you end up folding the best hand uh, or a hand with a lot of equity. You also are not really a favorite against a lot of his draws. Like if he has the nut flush draw, if he has queen 10, 10, 9, there's a bunch of hands like that that are you know, have 50-ish percent equity against you. So you're not really making money by raising into those. I think, and I don't mean to assert that Shane is making this mistake, but I think a lot of people make this mistake of just focusing on whether or not they have the best hand and not thinking about how far ahead or behind they might be. And the problem with this hand is you're either slightly ahead of a draw or you know some other kind of bluff, or you're way behind a stronger hand. And I don't think you're making very many stronger hands fold. I think that's the best reason for not raising this. Like our raising range, as Shane kind of hints at, our raising range should be more polarized. When we're raising, it should be either, you know, I'm raising because I have very strong hands that 
that are eager to get more money into the pot, or I'm raising because I have very weak hands that will benefit from making the opponent fold. Here, I think our hand, like the only hands that he folds are hands that we're doing pretty well against anyway. Um, and we don't have a hand that wants to play a large pot. So I think we have very little incentive to raise this hand. Uh, and I think at the price that we're getting, you know, we just, like there are plenty of hands that we could be ahead of and we're going to call. I know it feels bad to say, well, you know, I'm just calling and and it's so easy to draw out on me, etc. I mean, you have a bad hand. <laughs> like you, your baseline should be that you're probably not going to win this pot when you see this flop. You, you don't have a particularly strong hand. Your EV upon seeing this flop is relatively low. I mean, I would guess if there's six blinds in the pot, I'm not even really sure how to estimate what your EV would be. I mean, maybe one blind or something. Like you're, you're not you're not expecting to get a lot of money out of this pot. So when the villain bets small, if you're looking for like, what's a super profitable thing I can do here? There, there's not one. Um, what we're looking to do is sort of claw back our share of equity in this pot. We have a difficult hand to play and a relatively weak hand. Uh, it's bad news for us that the villain is already showing interest in the pot. And basically we're like, well, you know, we're probably going to lose, but we're getting a really good price. So, you know, we'll call and maybe miraculously we win. That's, that's kind of the thought process here. We... Oh, so, and then he says, um, by not raising, I'm putting myself in a condensed range. Is it accurate to say that? I have the nuts advantage, but we both have all the draws. Yeah, I do think that's accurate. And that's not, I, I guess maybe Shane's not asserting this, but I mean, there are times to put yourself into a condensed range. Like there are hands that correctly you know, should should be part of a condensed range. Um, it's hands like these that don't benefit from raising. And yeah, playing a condensed range does put you at a disadvantage going forwards, but that doesn't mean that there's a better option. Um, I don't think that raising is better. I don't think that folding is better. So what we do is, you know, we, we call and recognize we may be playing a condensed range going forwards, and that's not ideal, but it's better than the alternatives. The other thing that's important about this board, and Shane hints at this at least, talking about all the draws that are on the board, this is a thing that happens commonly on, on the flop, especially on dynamic boards. Even if you call and sort of, you do like cap or condense your range by calling when you would be raising a lot of your strongest hands, the turn is very likely to scramble hand strength, meaning hands that were not very strong on the flop could easily become very strong on the turn. Right? A heart could give you a flush, a many cards could give you a straight, some cards could give you trips or two pair. So even if you do kind of rec cap your range by calling, like even if your opponent could say, well, he just called that bet, he never has a set, he never has two pair, he never has top pair with a good kicker, you know, now I can just Right, so, so that's something an opponent could accurately say. It's like, he probably doesn't have one of these very strong hands because he just called the flop bet. So then the next question is, what could the opponent actually do about that? And the answer would be, he can make big bets on the turn and river if he correctly identifies that you have a capped range. The thing is, the turn is very likely to uncap you. There's so many turn cards that will introduce nutty hands into your range, even if you're never just calling the flop with nutty hands. There are so many turn cards that could put nutty hands into your range that for the most part, your opponent's not going to be able to get away with that, at least not to a great 
degree. This happens to be one of the blanker turn cards that could come, and there's a fair number of cards like this. So, I mean, we got a little unlucky to get a, a turn card where it's particularly easy for the opponent to keep betting into us. There will be many turn cards where he would have to worry about the hero having improved to a strong hand, even if he correctly identified that the hero didn't have any strong hands in his flop calling range. And this is one of those things that I was saying, like, I don't think Play Optimal Poker goes into a lot of detail on this, and it's, this is kind of what Pop 2 is all about, is early street range construction. So when we talk about like polarizer condensed ranges, I mean, for one thing, on the flop, those terms are a little wishy-washy anyway, because hands change value from street to street. Like on the river is really the only time we have hands that are like definitively the nuts or definitively air. Before the river, most hands, you know, they're not 100% or 0%. Most hands can get stronger or weaker. And so talking about preflopic, uh, talking about polarized and condensed at all early in a hand is a little confusing and, and inaccurate. The second thing is that, um, I mean, I guess it's, it's related, but like the player with the polarized range on the flop is not necessarily going to be the player with the polarized range on the turn. And uh, on boards that are more static, slow playing might be more important. You know, it would be more important if this were like a king-deuce-deuce board that we wouldn't want to just raise all of our strong hands on the flop because it would be very unlikely that the turn would change hand values. But this is a dynamic board where the turn easily could change hand values, and so we don't have to be as concerned about slow playing strong hands on the flop in order to make sure we can have strong hands on the turn. Okay, so we call. And the turn is the four of diamonds. There's now 9.2 blinds in the pot. And the villain bets about quarter pot again, 2.5 into 9.2. So the board, king, jack, eight, four with a heart draw. And we have nine, eight, or uh, yeah, nine, eight of diamonds. Shane says, uh, he's still betting the polarized range, albeit at a small size. This is one of those times where I think it's a little misleading or unhelpful to talk about. I mean, yeah, he has the more polarized range because he's betting. The fact that he's betting small means that he doesn't really have to be that polarized. And the tricky thing about earlier street play and what makes poker different from a toy game like the ace-king-queen game is that on earlier streets, you have incentive to bet hands that are not like part of a polarized range. Um, you have incentive to bet hands that are not extremely strong or extremely weak. On the river, that tends not to be the case. But before the river, you have some incentive to bet hands for um, equity denial, for instance. Like the villain could be betting a jack here because he wants to prevent us taking a free card and you know, potentially hitting like an ace or a queen. And a jack is a hand that's like not extremely strong or extremely weak, but it is a hand that benefits to some degree from protection. Or the villain could be semi-bluffing withdrawals. The smaller the bet size, the more linear he could be, which is a different kind of range I didn't really talk a lot about in Play Optimal Poker because it's not something that exists on the river, but it's something I talk a lot about in Play Optimal Poker too, because often you do encounter ranges that are somewhat linear on earlier streets. Linear meaning they contain hands that are not extremely strong or extremely weak. They contain hands like thin value bets, protection bets, semi-bluffs, hands that get some value when called or have some value when called, but also benefit to some degree from folds. So yes, villain has the more polarized range, especially on this turn card, but I don't think the villain is all that polarized, for whatever that's worth. Shane asks, uh, should I be folding a portion of my flop calling range on the turn? Yes, is the short answer. I mean, that's almost always correct. 
it's important to recognize, and Shane does recognize, that for such a small bet, you should not be folding a very large portion of your range. You should identify, you should do exactly what Shane does, which is identify, okay, what are the weakest hands in my flop calling range? I'm going to fold those, but only the very weakest. I mean, if, if the villain's bet is a quarter pot, we should be folding something like 20% of our range, like the very the 20% the, the weakest hands that we called with on the flop, somewhere in that neighborhood because of the, the size of his bet. That's a, a very rough guess. But I mean, that gives you an idea of like, we shouldn't be folding very many hands. We should be folding a few of our worst hands. And Shane is right. I mean, 8-7 is pretty close to the bottom of his range. And I think it is a kind of close decision on the turn. It's sort of like, oh, gross, I'm getting pretty good odds, but I'm probably going to lose. I mean, again, it's just like this is not a high value spot to be in. So we're not trying to find a high value line. We're not trying to say, how can I win, you know, multiple big blinds in EV by calling or raising or whatever. I mean, it's I, I think calling is probably like slightly better than folding, but only slightly. And I think Shane's analysis is right. He might have some smaller pocket pairs in his range that would be better folds. Um, Shane might also have some weak draws in his range that would be better folds, um, maybe like a gut shots or things like that, that, um, that are going to be weaker than this hand. I think that's the kind of stuff you're going to fold on the river. Uh, it's worth talking about because this comes up in, in Shane's river questions, like where are our draws? So I talked about we want to be raising some very strong hands on the flop or most very strong hands on the flop. We want to be raising some, some bluffs. 10-9 um, or uh, heart trolls, stuff like that, those would not exactly count as bluffs because they're very high equity hands. When we talk about raising like a bluff on the flop, it would be, like, I mean, Shane mentioned some examples like uh, pocket sixes, maybe, you know, it could, could be a hand that's raising as a bluff or um, queen nine, which is like, it is a draw, but it's a pretty weak draw. Uh, Hands like, like if, if you're raising range on the flop, we're only set to pair ace king, pocket aces, and then like very high, very high equity draws like ace x of hearts, nine ten of hearts. That's still it's still too strong of a range. That that range doesn't really give your opponent much incentive to continue to your raise with anything but very good hands. So. Or, you know, a, a balance there, like very strong draws, are not the hands that balance out nutty hands. Um, Airball kind of hands are what balance out nutty hands. The other thing is that there's not one thing you should be doing with all your draws. It's not like, well, am I raising all my draws on the flop or am I calling all my draws on the flop? You should have some draws in your raising range and some draws in your calling range. And that's important for board coverage, which is another topic that I talk about at length in play optimal poker too. Sorry, that's just, I've, I've been writing the book a lot lately, so it's very much on my mind. Um, board coverage, meaning your opponent shouldn't be able to predict by looking at the turn card, this card is obviously good for, for you or obviously bad for you. What that means is if you always raise your heart draws on the flop, then when the turn was a heart, the opponent could say, aha, heart, he never has a flush, therefore he's capped and I can just you know, overbet into him and he's in a really bad spot. Right? We know that playing the condensed range against the polarized range is bad, and if we never just call with a heart draw, then we're going to have a condensed range when the turn comes a heart, and that's disadvantageous. Um, but it would be the same problem if we always caught our heart draws and never raised the flop with a heart draw, because then if we raised and the turn was a heart, we'd have the same problem. So we need to have some hearts in our raising range and some in our calling range, and we need to have some straight draws in our raising range and some in our calling range.
And what we see is that at equilibrium, we're indifferent with those things. It's possible if your opponent plays badly enough, you know, that he's not going to take advantage of that kind of information, for instance, that, you know, it could be correct to always call or always raise. But there's pretty strong theoretical reasons why you should call with some draws and raise with others. And some draws are better for raising than others. Like, you know, 10-9 of hearts is a robust enough draw that you can actually get all in on the flop, or ace-x of hearts. And then there's other weaker heart draws, like 6-5 of hearts, where if you raise in your opponent three bets, you're probably going to have to fold those. And so those might not make such good raising candidates. Um, so you should have some heart draws in, in, your, in your calling range and also some in your raising range. And then you know, on the turn, that means you're still going to have some pretty strong draws. You, stu you still should have some like nine out flush draws, eight out straight draws. And those are hands that should not be folding, of course. Um, you'll mostly call with them. You might sometimes raise with them. Uh, we get to the river, and the river pairs the jack. So the final board is king jack, eight, four jack. There was a heart draw on the flop that missed. Our hero is holding nine eight of diamonds. Shane says, uh, the villain checks the river, and Shane says, I now have the opportunity to bet a polarized range, but should I? Yes, you should. The real question is, does this hand belong in it? And I think no. Um, you should bet, you know, if you have a jack, you should be betting for value. Um, even your best kings you can bet for value. I think it's safe to say the villain rarely has a jack or better when he checks the river. One of the advantages of being in position, you can make thinner value bets because you get information like that. So you can even, if you have some top pair hands that got this far, some you know top pair with good kicker hands that you didn't raise earlier, those are even strong enough to value bet now. And then you can also bet some bluffs. Uh, as I think Shane identifies, 8-7 is not a particularly good bluffing candidate. I think it's good that he asked himself that question, you know, what other candidates do I have? Could I have missed draws? I think the answer is yes. And I think Shane's too hard on himself when he says, oh, I'm contradicting myself because I said I would raise draws on the flop. Right? As I've argued, you should have a mix of you know, calls and raises with your draws. So even though you're going to raise some draws on the flop, you should still have some draws to call twice. Those are going to be better bluffing candidates than 8-7. Um, the problem with turning 8-7 into a bluff, as Shane kind of recognizes, is it does have substantial showdown value. And this gets to his final question about um, playing exploitatively. You know, is bluffing everything on the river exploitative? Yes, it is. Um, you are supposed to have some weak hands that do not bluff on the river. If you were to bet with all of your bluffs on the river, then the villain would be correct to call with his bluff catchers. I mean, Shane uh, seems a little like eye-rolly about, well, sometimes these bad players just don't fold top pair. Um, I'm not convinced that's a mistake, period, but even, even if it were, it wouldn't be a mistake if you were bluffing everything. So it would be exploitable if you just you know, bet all of your weak hands on the river. It is true that a hand with no showdown value will typically be indifferent to bluffing the river at equilibrium, or might even be plus EV to bluff at equilibrium, depending on how weak the hand is. And this is something I talk a lot about in the original Play Optimal Poker, about you know being indifferent to bluffing, and sometimes when you have so little showdown value, sometimes your very worst hands are actually plus EV bluffs. Uh, but when you're indifferent, it's also true that you're extremely sensitive to your opponent's strategy. And if your opponent folds a little too much on the flop, you might go from being indifferent to bluffing to having a preference for bluffing. If he's going to make a mistake, even if it's a small mistake of folding too much, given that you're indifferent at equilibrium, the EV is equal, even a small mistake on his part can lead to a big change on your part, where now it becomes downright profitable for you to bet with a bunch of hands that had a tough decision if your opponent were playing perfectly. 
The thing about 8-7, about bottom pair, is I don't think it is a hand that's indifferent at equilibrium. Right? Hands with no showdown value or very little showdown value are the ones that are typically indifferent to bluffing. When you have a decent amount of showdown value, like Shane says, you know, I think I'm beating most of my opponent's range. Well, that's a good reason for not bluffing. Okay, even if bluffing is plus EV, which is kind of Shane's argument, he thinks it will be. Even if it's true that bluffing is plus EV, bluffing would have to be more plus EV than checking. Right? Checking this hand is also plus EV. You're going to win the pot. If you say, if you believe you're ahead of most of your opponent's range, that means you're going to win pretty often by checking. So even if bluffing is plus EV, that doesn't make it the best play because I think checking is going to be even more plus EV. I also think it's just very optimistic to believe your opponent is going to fall to king. Um, you, as as you, know, you point out, you're, um, you're going to have lots of missed draws. He's going to have a lot of incentive to call with a king. Um, just because you could have a jack doesn't mean he should fold a king. Like at best, he might be indifferent to calling with it, but I don't think it's like obviously correct that he should just be folding a king to a quarter pot bet on the river. Um, if you're going to be polarizing to the point where you either have a jack or a bluff, the right play might be to go all in rather than bet like 15 into 20. Um, but I think that's neither here nor there. I think this is a poor river bluffing candidate because it does have some showdown value and when the hand is not good, I think it's unlikely the villain is going to fold anyway. Like, if the villain has a hand as strong as a king, I think you're not going to get him off of that anyway, so there's very little reason to turn this hand into a bluff. The hand that you would like him to fold, he's probably not going to fold anyway. So I think well-played hand. I mean, a tough spot, a lot of tough decisions. I think you're thinking through them mostly well, and I hope that um, hearing me elucidate some of these comments and, and questions around the idea of like polarized ranges and range construction is uh, helpful to you, Shane, and to everybody. And of course, if you want to uh, read me elaborating on these concepts in great, great, great detail, uh, Play Optimal Poker 2 coming soon to stores near you, well, to internet stores near you, and uh, the original Play Optimal Poker available now from Amazon.com or Nitcast.com. Now, please enjoy our interview with Dick Carson. How, how so? Yeah, well, I, I traveled through an international airport uh, about 12 days ago in uh, O'Hare in Chicago. I went to see my daughter, and you know, I, and then they started announcing all this stuff, and they said if you've traveled through an international airport, that's more dangerous than a lot of places. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Sure. So, yeah, I'm on quarantine. How about you, Andrew and Nate? How are y'all? I'm I'm on self quarantine. I don't think I've done anything too risky, but I'm I'm just trying to keep it that way. Yeah, and I'm. Uh, I'll tell you, this this is the biggest thing since World War Two. Maybe bigger than that. Who knows what this is going to be? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's uh, it's pretty grim. What what was it? Two 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 and a half percent of the world died in World War Two, and uh, this could get worse than that. It's uh, it's 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 pretty it's scary. It's going to be bigger than nine eleven because it's going to last longer. In other words, nine eleven, you know, was over and. Then it was terrible and a terrible tragedy and we went to war but on our soil i don't know if we've ever faced anything like this yeah, yeah and right. the, 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 the effects are what else you know what'd you say oh yeah and the effects are the long-lasting effects are going to be probably more than just the tsa you know <laughs> yeah plus the fact yeah. they just got through saying a few days ago that this 
this could taper off in the summer maybe in the hot months it might it might not and then it could come back in the winter again Absolutely. i mean it, who knows about this thing Oh, well, you remember the bubonic plague, I guess. I mean, we don't remember it, of course, but we've read about it. <laughs> Hopefully we learned something anyway. Anyway, little time, no poker lately. That's right. And there might not be any poker for a while, just the Internet. Where do you play on the Internet? Uh, I've not played much. I've played a little bit on uh, America's Card Room. I'm debating whether or not to do that today because Sunday is kind of the big day for the for the online tournaments. But um, I've actually been working. I, I published a book uh, last year about using game theory in poker, and I'm working on a sequel to it. So a lot of my uh, a lot of my work time has gone into working on the book rather than playing poker. Yeah, I'm looking for a place to play cheap on the internet. Uh, either one two no limit or one three no limit and i asked john he's playing at a place called global poker but he doesn't recommend it do you know any places that have you know a variety of of uh, small games e even limit even four eight limit or three six limit but I'd rather play one two or one three no limit yeah i mean i think so i, I think your big options are global poker america's card room or ignition um, maybe also a site called GG Poker. I'm a little less sure about their um, their offerings. I think they all have pretty significant limitations in terms of playing for the United States. It's kind of a pain to get money on the sites. The customer support's not very good. The software isn't always very good. Um, there's not a lot of reason, but probably more reason than you would like to be a little worried about the... Um, the security of, of the games and the security of your your money on the site i don't think it's a huge risk but i don't think it's zero um none of them are, are fantastic options but i imagine they would all have the um the limits that you're looking for in abundance i i i uh i thought online poker would just really take off now because since there's no casinos open <laughs> i think it kind of has um i think there's just we're still limited by the uh, the regulatory climate in the U.S., but I think the the numbers of people playing online are are way up in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I would think so. I think anyway, what's going on? Sure. So what did you say, John? Oh, I don't know. I'm I'm, I'm not a, a poker stars online guy. I was, uh, but um, I heard didn't they have the most turnout for a Sunday tournament ever uh, recently? They did, although that was also that was an event they've been promoting for a long time. That was, I mean, I'm, there probably was a uh, a quarantine effect, but that was that was just like a big anniversary Sunday Million tournament that they had been uh, advertising for a while. I see. Um, yeah, so Dick, John wanted us to remind you that just as we did last time, you know, if, if there's anything, it'll be a few weeks before we air this. So if anything comes up that you decide, oh, you know, I wish I hadn't said that or whatever, you know, it, it won't be a problem. Just uh, let, let John know, or I guess you have my email now, so you can let me know directly. And, you know, we'll, we'll take it out if it turns out you, uh, you said something that you, you later regret. Well, I mean, we say things we've read all our lives. I mean... Uh, John knows a, a, an instance when I said something at the casino in uh, Connecticut, which was a terrible day for me, and I had just been diagnosed with cancer, and I was having an eye surgery, and I had all kind of problems, and I was broke, and a guy at the poker table made a completely out-of-line statement. In fact, he made two of them, 
I was playing poker with him and he, I bet him on the flop a good bet and he said, uh, gosh damn old man, you must have drawn out on me. And that's what his words were and there were several people at the table that would back it up. It's been several years and then the next card came off. I had a big set, I think, and the next card came off. Wasn't a great card for me, but it, it wasn't a, it wasn't a, you know, that bad a card. I think it made a middle buster straight. He checked, I bet him again. I don't remember the amount. It could have been 300. Uh, it was a, either a 2.5 or 5.10, and I'm playing Casey Jones, which is what we used to call it. And he called it, and the last card come off, and he didn't check. He looked over at me, and he said, Oh, man, I think you drawed out on me again. Well, the last card made a flush, a one-card straight, and everything. My hand turned to absolutely nothing. And he he didn't check and I, I wondered what he was doing and so then he bet me like all my money my last money four or five hundred dollars something like that six hundred it was my last money too and i i didn't know what to say and i, I wasn't going to call him because you know playing no limit if you start doing that you know you probably won't wind up with money but he said i'm all in and he bet me all his money and i stood there and studied and i said i said you know I said, if you'd have said that to me at the Redmond's Club in 1967, they might have taken you outside and strung you up. I was joking him, of course. So all of a sudden, the security guards came over and threw me out of the casino. Oh, wow. Now, he should have been thrown out. He was thrown out later on. I heard through the grapevine that he got barred later on. And I said something. The security guard walked me to the door. And I'm not uh, a violent person, and I didn't mean what I said, but I, what I said was the truth. Mm -hmm. But some of these people playing poker nowadays, I, I don't want to, you know, I know this, you know, I, I, some of these, especially the younger ones, they make some statements to you that wouldn't have been accepted 50 years ago. So that's the end of that. So we, we all say things that we probably shouldn't say or that we, or it's the wrong time to say it, but anything that i say there if i don't want to say something i'll just tell you that i don't want to discuss that issue fair, fair enough so, i so, mean there's no reason for me to apologize for anything i mean uh, i'm just saying if, if if there's something that i don't want to discuss with you i'll just say i'd rather not discuss i'm not going to discuss it not I, I, that's all i'll say yeah, and that, that'll be but i can tell you a lot of things about some of the questions john wanted to ask me i mean about back in texas and the games and what they spread and who played and I mean, I was right there for many a year. So whatever you say, we'll do, and whatever I say, I'll do. So that's simple as that. Well, could we start talking? With, I'm going to um, let. I'm gonna let <laughs> go ahead, John. I'm going to let Nate and I'm going to let Nate and Andrew do most of the talking. But one of the questions I had for you, Dick, was I just wondered at a club like the Redmonds Club or a home game back in Texas at that time, what was the rake like? How did they do the rake? The Redmond's Club, uh, you know, the first time I went down there, I must have been 17 years old. I don't remember exactly my age. Could have been 16, could have been 18, but I think it was 17. And I think, I'm not certain whether it was Cowboy Wolford or whether it was, uh, it could have been uh, somebody else. I, I don't remember how I got introduced to the Redmond's, but I remember going down there with all my money, which probably was two or $300 which I lost every time I went down there. I had no chance. They played uh, Limit Hold'em 
most of the time, and they charge $2 every 30 minutes. Now, I remember that. $2 every 30 minutes was a time game uh, in the, in the, in the Hold'em. Now, they, you know, I played, I played Hold'em, and then they would spread three or four different games as the day went on. You know, if they got busy, they played Raz, uh, usually 5-10, Raz, seven-card low ball. There were, we played Deuce to Seven. I don't think I played Deuce to Seven then, but later on, you know, there, there was a Deuce to Seven game now and then. Uh, Walter Threadgill played. I mean, you know, James Eldridge, I mean, uh, Bob Hooks, and that, that kind of thing. They charged time. Now, what the time was in that game, I can't exactly remember. Uh, we played, I'm guessing we played, uh, I can't remember what it was. We might have played a $2 ante or something like that. But, you know, most of the games were time at that time. I think they went to rake off. Uh, later on, house games were usually rake off. That game down in Corpus Christi was Sam Moon's game. He charged 5% on your chips. In other words, if you bought $500, uh, you got 475 uh, You owed 500 Most of it was credit. We couldn't have a lot of money around those games uh, because of the hijackers. Uh, you know, we got robbed, and, uh, and you didn't want it to get out that a whole lot of cash was at the game. So there was a lot of credit. There was a lot of credit at the Redmonds, too, not as much because the security was better. And it was downtown Dallas, and you had to come up, you know, steep steps and ring a buzzer and get pushed, pulled in one door and then let in the other door. So, But in house games, mostly credit. And they, they, they break the pot. I don't remember, you know, it's been so long uh, since I played in a house game. And then after the Redmonds closed, you know, several people owned it. Hooks, uh, uh, guy, uh, Mr. Phillips, James Eldridge. Uh, I don't remember. You know, uh, I met uh, what's his name had a piece of it one time. Uh, the old gambler, Titanic Thompson. He played down there when I was just a kid, and he. I think he had a piece of it for a while. But then it went out to the uh, Ambets Club on Greenville Avenue. The Redmonds closed. You know. What they used to do is they would get a permit, like a Redmond's or an Elks Lodge, same thing. They would get a, a charter, and technically, you know, you were a member of the Redmond's, and you had to be a member to get in, but that was all bull. I mean, anybody could get in that had money, but, but you know, that's how they operated. Now, they, you know, the police did raid at times. They were, they never did nothing, but, you know, fine 50 bucks or something like that. The rake-off then was livable. But, you know, those were different days. Does that answer your question, John? Very thoroughly. Thank you. Well, I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't remember the exact rake-off, but I do remember the first time at the Redmonds, it was $2 every half hour, and there was a guy named Eddie Brown that worked down there that used to take the rake-off off. Uh, I'm, I can't remember. You know, mostly Eddie Brown was there the years that I played, which was probably, I don't remember when they closed. But they closed in the 70s, and they went out to the AMVET. Same people, same deal. Cowboy had it one time, hooks, and, uh, you know, I don't remember. But uh, I want to tell you, I told you about Mike Cox. Uh, John, I gave you Mike Cox's phone number. 
Yes. You remember, or did you get it? Oh, yes, I did. Thank you. I, I want to let you know, Nate and Andrew, if you could get a hold of Crandall Addington, he would be a real good one for one of your podcasts. Crandall lives in San Antonio. I don't, you know, I haven't seen Crandall in, gosh almighty, 30 years maybe, but he uh, he lived in San Antonio, and he'd be a good one to talk to about all kinds of the, you know, the poker down there. He, you know, he would be a good one to, to talk to. I, you know, there's a lot of other people down there. I don't know. Some of them are alive and some of them are not, but the ones that are alive, I know them. Haven't seen them in years. The Hunsuckers and Jimmy Ornsby and, you know, well, you know, Carl McKelvey, he'd be a good one too, if he wanted to talk to you about poker in Texas. Uh, but anyway, most of the games were time games when I started playing. They went to rake off later, uh, you know, but nothing like the rake off is now. John, what do they take out of the one, two no limit games on the internet? Do you know? I, I'm i not sure. Um, I, I I don't know. I haven't played one, two lately. I'm, I'm sure. How about one, three? I'm not sure. Two, five? I know online right now on a thirty sixty limit Omaha eight or better, they take five dollars a pot. I, I think only it might actually be the same. Thirty sixty. I, I know only only because I played some Omaha thirty sixty online lately, and it's it's five dollars per pot. But the person, you know, the, the site's also doing it on credit, so it's somewhat similar to a home game where they're fronting the money. So five dollars yeah. might seem that's high, not bad though. That's not. I don't think it's bad. Nate and Andrew, what do you think? Yeah, it's it's what I'd expect. Yeah, it's about as good as you're going to do. You know, they're taking seven dollars a pot out of these one, two, and one, three games, and I don't know if you can beat that or not. Uh, they get five, and they get one, and they get one for the jackpot. I mean, I don't know if you can overcome that or not. You know, you'd have to have a lot of bad players in the game. I mean, I don't know, but I mean, some of these games that I've seen in the last few years, it, the rake-off is unbelievable, like the World Series of Poker. I mean, look at the money they take. I mean, it's almost, yeah, you can win if you win the big tournament. If you win a tournament, you can win, but how many people <laughs> win a tournament? Right. I mean, what's the odds on you winning that tournament the rest of your life? You're not even even money. You may, you may be a thousand to one. So anyway... I just wondered if John knew a place to play cheap where the rake-off didn't completely, uh, you know, cripple you. So I'm looking right now, the um, the rake at America's Card Room, which is the site that I mentioned, uh, it is 5% with a $3 cap. So they're going to take uh, a penny for every 20 cents that goes into the pot up until they take $3, and then they won't take any more than that. That's not bad. Yeah, I think the other thing you'll find playing online... Um, Often the games are, so, you know, like when you talk about like a one-two game online, that's going to be very different yeah. from a one-two game uh, in, in a live setting. I think like a very rough comparison is that like the caliber of play you should expect to see, you probably have to uh, divide the stakes by 10. So, you know, what you're going to find in a typical like one-two live game would probably be closer to what you would find in like a 10 cent, 25 cent game online in terms of the, um, the, the skill of the players. The online games tend to be much tougher relative to the stakes. 
So you're saying that the one-two game online is tougher than the one-two game at the Bellagio? Yes, by a wide margin. And I think that's largely because, you know, when you want to play live poker, there's nowhere that you can do it for cheaper than one two or very few places so you know one two is sort of for whoever is the most casual players um if like they're still sort of forced to play one two because they can't play anything smaller than that but online you know you can play games as small as maybe two cent four cent blinds and so that's where a lot of the more casual players end up and by the time you get up to one two you're you're probably dealing with a player pool that's pretty similar to what you would find in like a five ten live game where it's mostly professionals or at least you know serious amateurs yeah is that america's card room is that owned by chris now chris ferguson no bet chris the sports book who who owns america's card room it used to be bet chris oh it might be chris chris nagy i think is his name n-a-g-y his name is phil nagy yes you're right phil nagy yes Okay, well, that's the same thing. That's that's like true poker. That's owned by Bet Chris, the international sports, the people that I was involved with. Okay, well, that's more than I knew about it. I, I didn't I didn't know if they still had America's Card Room, but it used to be called True Poker. But the guy's name that runs it is Phil Nagy. I know him. Okay. Um, you think that's the best place to play? Then just cheap. I, honestly, I, I don't know. That's the only place that I've I've put money on. Um, I was mostly doing it. I think they have the best tournament offerings from what I've seen. Um, I don't know in terms of uh, in terms of the cash game offerings. Like, I mean, that's just the only one I'm I'm familiar with. I wouldn't swear to you that it's the best. Okay, so much for my questions. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm curious. Wait, like, so whatever you want to do here. If I if I want to talk, I will. If I don't, I won't. A, a place like the um, the Redmond Club. When you say that the the security was better, do you know? I mean, did that entail like? affiliation with organized crime did that entail your know, payments to the police it was just private security like what, what does it mean to say the security was better at the redmond club had nothing to do with organized crime that i knew about nothing nothing at all these guys i'm talking about that ran it they're just they were just gamblers mm-hmm. james eldridge he owned a uh, he he owned a pawn shop i mean mr phillips was a businessman i mean no Nothing like that. As, as far as I know, never involved any police. The police did come up there a few times. Uh, you know, I'm sure they knew what happened, what was going on up there. But the only thing going on up there was poker. I mean, there was nothing else. I mean, no, I know of nothing like that. The reason why the security was better was because when you went to the Redmond's Club, you had to go in uh, off of Irby Street and walk up a steep uh, flight of stairs, uh, long, pretty high stairs. You rang a buzzer, and there was a glass there, and Eddie Brown, who usually, of course, a lot of us answered the glass because we knew who was coming, but Eddie Brown would look through the glass and see you, and he'd buzz you in. And then after you got in, he would ask you, he would say, who's with you? And the guy would, whoever's coming, say nobody or just myself. And then once... Once the player got inside, he was still he was still corralled, and he couldn't get into the poker game unless they buzzed him in again. So, you know, we got I got robbed up there one time, but it was not by a uh, by a uh, outside robber. It was a guy by the name of Red Guernsey, who actually was working there and helping Mister Phillips late at night take the rake off and uh, that's a funny story right there uh, red guernsey robbed us one night he had gotten broke playing 
I, you know, it's, it's, it's a memory of mine. Bob Brooks, I think Doc Nichols. We might have been playing Raz. I can't remember. Uh, might have been Walter Threadgill. There could have been uh, Gilbert Hess. I don't remember the, all the players. I remember Bob Brooks was there. And uh, Red Guernsey had gotten broke, and he said he needed to go home. And would somebody just take the rake off? You know, we were playing shorthanded and give it to Mr. Phillips when he got back or the next day and lock up or whatever. You know, it's got that kind of a place. And I loaned him 20 bucks and he left. We thought he'd gone home, which he did, I guess, but to get a gun. <laughs> he came back and robbed us. But when he came back, I just buzzed him in. I mean, we, we buzzed him in. I don't think I buzzed him in, but whoever answered the door, must have been three or four o'clock in the morning, you know, you know, they buzzed him in and he, he was desperate. Come to find out he robbed us and he, he, he backed out of the door and he said, uh, I hated to do this, but I have no choice. Had a gun on us. Of course, we just, we didn't call the police nothing. Uh, to be honest with you, what we did, well, we started playing on credit. I mean, we just, <laughs> we just kept playing. I mean, that's a true story. So help me God. That's a true story. And so I don't know who's alive to verify it, but, his name was Red Guernsey, and he did rob us uh, up there. But the security at the Redmond's Club was better because of the reasons I just told you. Whereas in a house game, you know, you don't really have that kind of security. I mean, somebody could break the door down and come in. You know, the Redmond's Club was a little bit more secure. Two buzzers, two windows, that kind of stuff. Uh, and furthermore people knew that there wasn't a lot of money up there. There was money, of course, but you know, not all, a lot of people played on credit. Mm -hmm. uh, Morris Shapiro, all those guys, old timers up there, and uh, they played on credit. So that's the reason why the security was better at the Redmonds. Same way with the Ambeds. Uh, that was kind of the same kind of setup. Mm -hmm. Two doors up the stairs and everything on Greenville Avenue. So I, I think part of the reason uh, John suggested that we talk to you now was with um, with Kenny Rogers passing away and knowing that you had some some history playing with him. Uh, can you talk a little bit about I, playing with Kenny Rogers? Yeah, I played with Kenny Rogers at the Nugget. I don't remember exactly what year. You know, Kenny Rogers, if I remember right, he performed at the Nugget. Now, I saw him a time or two. I don't remember one time at the Nugget, maybe. and He, he, he actually... He got to performing on the strip. Uh, he was a big star at one time. He was like Wayne Newton. Wayne Newton used to perform down at the Nugget. Uh, played poker with him at the at the uh, Nugget. Don't remember how many times. Didn't re didn't know him personally, but he did not play well. But he came in. I don't remember what year. I guess I could have looked it up. What year that song was made? Uh, to know when to hold him and know when to fold him. Uh, it was. Uh, I just can remember him talking about, you know, that he had song was coming out or had come out, you know, and for a while that was a hit song, especially among poker players. They used to play it at tournaments once in a while. Amarillo Slim, he turned it on a few times during his tournaments, but I didn't know Kenny Rogers personally, of course, but I knew him from poker and I knew him from, he played there at the Nugget. I, I never, you know, didn't know him personally. And when he died, I thought he was older than 81. But, I, you know, I, I thought he must be older than 81. But I guess he was 81. 
but I hadn't seen Kenny Rogers probably since the middle eighties or late eighties, probably. I don't remember the exact year. Was he any good? But yes, he played. Excuse, no, he didn't play well. (laughs) You know, I mean, you know, that's been a long time and you, you know, people that played well, you remember them. I mean, it was a guy named Chuck Berry who played, uh, bottoms, uh, was his name and his wife's I think Sissy or something like that. His name was Bottoms and he he was a good player. Uh there was a couple of old timers around there uh that were good Sam Petrillo was a good player. That was a limit game. I only played limit during the day mostly. I mean I they played no limit at night, but they didn't start the game till eight or nine o'clock. I said eight or nine o'clock so um <clears throat> No, I don't. My memory was he was not a great player or a good player, but that's been a long time. So maybe a better way to put it was not a winning player. That's the way John would put it. <laughs> right. Not a winning player. In other words, you would want him in the game, and that's you know that's like any poker game. I mean, they may win, but you'd rather him be in the game as not. Although I guess if if playing led to him writing that song, he made more money off the game than anybody else did. He made more money off that song than he lost in that poker game, I can tell you that. Right. <laughs> and the other 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 song too, The Gambler, uh John told me I, I I haven't heard that song in thirty years, however long it's however long it's been, but I thought the song said the gambler uh died broke. It says the gambler broke even. Well, he's probably right because that's what we all do is break even. We come in with nothing and we leave with nothing. Yeah, fair enough. That was that was a big song on country radio when I was young, and uh, I'm not that old. I'm only 37. So yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. It, it, by the way, as as recently as 2011, 2012 or so, uh, Kenny Rogers was playing Turning Stone and to adoring fans in in casinos. So he was he was still he was still touring. I've been to Turning Stone, but I never saw him there. I saw him at the Nugget, I think, and out on the strip one night. I can't remember where he was but i remember him being on one of those billboards out there for a little while mm. you know he he became like a you know they call people that get on the strip stars not anymore because they don't have shows anymore hardly mm-hmm. you know there's you know people that, that perform individually vegas turned into a you know they have big production shows more more you know like circus de soleil and all that used to be it was sinatra and the Dean Martin and uh, all those kind of people, you know, uh, Dangerfield and the guy that played in the movie. Uh, anyway, uh, uh, they, you know, Vegas changed, but you were called a star if you made the strip, if you made the billboard, you know, in those days. Mm-hmm. Did you play poker with, have that with no any of those harder. guys, Sinatra or Martin? Excuse me? Did you play poker with any of those guys, like Sinatra or Martin? Mm-hmm. No, no, no. I never played poker with Sinatra or Martin. I, I went to see him. You know, I mean, I, I went to see Sinatra. And, you know, if I remember right, he did play at the Nugget also. Yeah. And, I'm trying uh, to think of other celebrities that, that I ever played poker with. I can't remember many of those guys ever playing. The, you know, the guy from what Kojak, about, what was his name? I think he played a little bit. Telly Savalas, was that his name? Yes. I, I can't remember. Telly Savalas might have played a little poker. Uh, the the biggest celebrity that I remember playing poker was uh, Welcome Back Carter, Gabe Kaplan. Mm-hmm. He played all the time back back then, back in the eighties. He's study. still at it. Is he still playing? I believe so. 
I believe his famous show was Welcome Back, Carter. Mm -hmm. I think yep. that was the name of it. Yep. Yes. So you I haven't uh, seen him in probably 35 years either. Yeah. So uh, over email, you told us um, very informative and entertaining stuff about the history of the clock in poker. Would you mind telling our listeners where the clock came from? All right. As to my recollection, which I think I'm right, I'm almost positive I'm right. The clock originated in Corpus Christi, Texas. I think, I think there had been conversation about having one. There used to be a man down there by the name of Sam Moon who had a poker game, and it was a kind of a what you'd call a famous game in Texas. Uh, him and his wife, and his wife cooked wonderful food. And, um, he had a poker game down there, and I used to go down there quite often, not all the time. It was a little ride from Dallas. It's to my best recollection, the clock was invented in Corpus Christi, Texas, and the reason it was invented and brought to the table because all the players got together. There was a man by the name of Speedy Myers. He lived in Killeen, Texas. Oh, I don't know how tall he is, but very tall man. He is the worst, and, and, and if Speedy's listening, he knows what I'm talking about. He was the worst there ever was installing. John knows what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about stalling. In other words, it's 162 you before the flop. You got a nine, the deuce off suit. And you put a beer or a chip on your cards and you sit back in your chair and you contemplate whether you want to call or not. Now, you know, if you had the ace and king of spades, you might sit back in your chair and contemplate. Speedy'd have a nine in the duck, and he'd sit back, and he'd take a drink of that beer. I forget what kind of beer he drank. He'd take a drink of that beer, and he'd step, set that beer down on his cards and look around the table and say, how much is it? How much is it? Well, to make a long story short, it just disrupted the game, and he wasn't that bad a player. I mean, had he been a, you know, a real bad player, they might have put up with it, but he wasn't that bad a player. I mean... He wanted him in the game, but he's still a dangerous player and had money and would bet. Anybody that anybody that'll bet playing no limit, if he's not a bad player, it can be dangerous. So if I remember right, Jack Strauss absolutely got enough of it. You know, and at the time, you know, Jack Strauss had little influence. He was road gambler and all that, but as to my recollection, they told Speedy Myers that they were gonna get a clock. Don't remember. I think it was a minute. It might have been a minute, and then you count to 10. And Sam Moon would be the one that had to do it. And they got the clock. Now, to go further than that, Speedy came to Las Vegas, and I'm going to say this had to be in the middle of the 70s, and he brought the clock with him. He brought it with him and set it on the table. He was a funny guy, Speedy. He had a funny way of, uh, of expressing himself. And if he's listening, I love you, Speedy Myers. He's alive, I think. But he knows what I'm talking about, and everybody else who knew him knows what I'm talking about. And that's how that I remember the clock, the first time that I remember the clock. And after that, we never used it because nobody really abused it like Speedy. But then when people did abuse it, you had it. In other words, I'm sure you've called it. John might have called it. Uh... I hate to call it, but there are games, especially if you're paying time, 
Uh, I was in a poker game one time, not long ago, in fact, uh, a little one-two game, and the guy was taking a long time. And somebody asked me, uh, I made a pretty good bet, and he asked me, he said, why didn't you call the clock on that guy? I said, well, we're not paying time. We're paying rake off. And I play tighter than he does, and I was hoping he'd decide to call it. So I didn't call the <laughs> clock. That's my best recollection of why the clock got instated. Now they use it all over the country, you know. Um, it's a good this, rule. Yeah. To be clear, this would have been it's like a, a literal clock. Uh, this would have been like a literal, like a, somebody's somebody's watch or, Sam, or something. Yeah. Sam Moon used to use his own watch on his, on his on his wrist, but that's all changed now. They got special clocks. They got. I'm talking about in the early '70s or late '60s. I mean, you know, Sam Moon would just look at his rock, a clock, his, his watch, and say, "Okay, you got a minute." And after that minute, you'd say, "I'm going to count to ten when he got to or ten to zero, and when he got to zero, the dealer got your cards. You, you know, your hands dead. You can't call now. You know, you can't. You know, you, your hands dead." Uh, they didn't have a stopwatch at those days. Now later on, I think out in Las Vegas, I think. Uh, Bill Boyd got us a stopwatch. Uh, you know, especially if Speedy came out. There are people who abuse that. You know, a lot of times, it's my opinion that some of these no-limit players, they like to stall because they like to aggravate you. They think that it's going to make you play bad or, you know, like, uh, say, for instance, you bet $350 and it's a big bet for the game. And some of these, especially younger players, they, they know they're not going to call it. But instead of going ahead and throw their hand away, they fool around with their chips. And they say, how much is it again? And they count their chips out. And they act like they're going to raise it. And I think they do it to try to intimidate you, to try to make you get nervous. If you're bluffing, you don't want them to call, of course. But who in the hell gets nervous anyway in a poker game, you know? At least I never, I, I, I can't imagine somebody making me nervous uh, uh, in a poker game. You know, if you if you make a bet, you make a bet. But I mean, that, uh, some of the, some people do abuse it. I think it's a good thing to have the clock. But Speedy Myers is the reason why the clock exists. Now, if I'm wrong about that, you can double check me. Why, why do you, you think... Call Speedy himself. <laughs> I think he's alive, and I think he lives in a rest home in Killeen or in uh, Waco or somewhere down there. Why do you think Speedy was, was stalling? Do you think it was the same thing of trying to intimidate people, or what do you think was his motivation? No, no, no. That's just Speedy Myers. I can tell you another story about Speedy Myers. I, I wish uh, we were shooting craps one night at the horseshoe. Bobby Baldwin, me, Cowboy Wolford. A, a guy from Tyler, uh, Kenny, I mean, uh, I'll think of his name in a minute, he's passed away, but anyway, we were, play, we were playing, we were shooting craps at the horseshoe back, you know, when Benny Binion had no limit craps, once in a while we'd take a shot, and uh, we were all shooting the craps, we just went up there and took a shot, I don't know how much money we all had on the front line, but we all had a big bet, and a lot of odds, and Speedy Myers was a good guy, and you are a good guy, Speedy. I love you, but he was kind of like a joker. You know, he liked to, you know, fool around and joke. He walked up to the crap table. I don't know how much money we had out there on the numbers. You know, we all were betting on the front line. We, anytime you shoot craps, you're going to make a big score. It's probably the front line. 
We were all betting on the front line, and Speedy Myers walked up at the end of the table. Oh, the guy's name is Henry Bowen. Henry Bowen uh, was at the table. Speedy Myers walked up to the table. We all knew him. We'd all played poker with him a million times. And he took a $5 chip, and he waved it in the air. The dice were going to be rolled. I had big bets on the numbers. Bobby had big bets on the numbers. Henry, Cowboy, I don't know who else was there. Maybe Jim White. I can't remember, but I know those people were there, and Speedy Myers held up a $5 chip. And he said, $5 on the don't pass. <laughs> <laughs> in, other words, in other words, he was just, he was, you know, you know, I, I can't explain it to you, but that's the way Speedy was and is probably. Uh, he's a good guy, but he's a joker. And he, that's, he didn't do it to intimidate you in the poker game. He did it because he was Speedy Myers, and that's just what he did. It Nobody ever got mad about it. We just, you know, they just... You know, it just couldn't keep going like that. And, you know, there are people playing poker that need to play. You know, they only can play two hours. they got to go. You know, if you take ten minutes to act on your hand with a nine-deuce, pretty soon somebody's going to complain about it. And what would what would the pace of a game have been like generally in in such a club? Like if you if our listeners have only, say, played one-two or one-three at a modern card room, uh, if you dropped them into one of these one of these games such as you used to play in, how would they find the pace of the game? Um, I would say it's about the same. Uh, to be honest with you, the biggest difference in the game is there was no dealer. Not when I started playing. Uh, there was no dealer. In other words, we all dealt. In other words, it was my deal. I shuffled them. I cut, I mean, somebody cut them to my right. That was probably the biggest difference. We had no shuffling machines. We dealt ourselves. The game was probably faster uh, because all the people now that play, I mean, you've you got to put your card in there. they got your name in there. Uh, I mean, uh, seat four is Joe, seat five, and the dealer. You know, I, I guess the, the, I'll tell you one thing. The pace of the game is slower now. But it's just because of what I told you. A lot of the people playing, they stall. They like to stall. I don't know if the, some people call it grandstanding. Some people call it Hollywood. Uh, you know, I, you know, and you know, it's just. And I can tell you one thing. I've seen poker players, and I've been in the pot where they beat me. You know, like beat me. I lost a big pot to them. And then after it's over, when they're taking the pot, they tell me how bad I played it. Now, you know, you couldn't get away with that either at the Redmond's Club. I'll tell you that. You take the pot when you win it. You don't criticize the poor man that lost it. Yeah. But nowadays, some of these young players do that. I mean, I've seen them do it, you know. Or if they bluff, I never show a bluff, ever. I think it's the worst thing you can do. But some people think you should show bluffs. I don't especially in no limit. I mean, you don't bluff in limit anyway, but you know, if they bluff you, they, ha ha ha, you know, you throw your hand away. Maybe you got one pair or something. You, it's a big bet and you decide, you, you know, you might think he's weak, but you don't want to put the money in. And then after you throw your hand away, he turns it over <laughs> and shows you that he bluffed you. Well, we didn't do that uh, in the old days. And probably because there might be somebody at the table that had a pistol in his coat. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's, but it, did I answer your question right? 
No, you did. You did. I appreciate it. I think the pace of the game is close to the same, with the exception that the players are a little bit more deliberate now. I mean, times have changed. Look at poker, how it's changed completely. Are there other uh, social expectations that would be different? I mean, so we talked about taking time. We talked about... Can you re- wait, I, I, I was, repeat that again? I didn't hear the first part of the question. I, I was wondering if there are other uh, sort of like social expectations that have changed at the table or, or the, um, the the ethics. Like you mentioned, it was bad form to criticize somebody after winning a, a big pot or you told the story about the, the person who uh, cursed you and, and said that you drew out on him. Are there other things that are acceptable now that weren't acceptable then or, or that were acceptable then and, and are not acceptable now? Yeah. To me, the biggest difference in the poker is that there's millions and millions of more people playing. Um, in the old days, everybody in the poker game, you knew them very well. I mean, you know, at the Ambeds club, we used to go up the street to the Greenville Avenue bar and grill and eat together and that kind of stuff. I mean, you you don't know everybody at the poker game now. There's so many different players. And when you get different human beings together, you're going to have different kind of behavior. Uh, the behavior is different. Is it all bad? No. But some of it I don't agree with, and I don't think a lot of the old-timers would agree with it either, but it's accepted. The talk, um, you know, you know, like if you sit next to somebody nowadays and you you know, you raise the pot and say you got ace king and say the flop comes a eight, nine, and a ten, and you check and he bets you and he throw and you throw your hand away. You know, I've had guys look over at me and say, Well, you probably had ace king, I know what you had. You know, that kind of stuff is so shallow in my mind. We didn't do that. Uh it's accepted now. The conversation at the table is accepted. I don't agree with it all. I know that it's like a lot of things, times change. The poker players get into more irrelevant discussions at the table than we did years ago. Uh, I think that's the biggest difference. Uh, It's just acceptance of of the conversation at the table is no different than the guy that told me that. I mean, I wouldn't have said that to him Probably, had I had a bankroll, had I not just come from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, you know, I, I, I had been operated on my eye, I had a detached retina, four operations, it was a bad day for me. John knows what I'm talking about. I probably owed John money at the time. It was a bad day for me, and I didn't accept it. So what I said to him, you know, was probably inappropriate, but he aggravated me in a way in which nobody else would have aggravated me. And I can tell you this much. If you've been sitting around that Redmond's club and you'd have said that to somebody that was playing at the Redmond's club, but he'd looked, I mean, I, I said that they'd have taken you outside and strung you up. I don't know if they'd have bothered to taking you outside. There was no place to string you up. They might've just uh, uh, put you in the oven back there. I don't know what they'd have done, but in the meantime, I don't think that's acceptable, and I'm the one that got thrown out. Now, he got thrown out later, I heard, uh, that he got barred. You know, you you just don't say that to somebody. In my opinion, a lot of the conversation at the poker table now is unhealthy, not necessary, and disrespectful. A lot of it. Not all of it, but a lot of it. 
you you really were running bad that day because uh, I can't count how many times I've heard somebody say like, oh, you know, you say that now, but back in the day, that went to you 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 would not have said that more than once. You know, uh, I've heard that a lot of times at poker tables, and it's never got anybody kicked out of a casino. Yeah, well, it, it did me. Yeah. You know, yeah. they said that I threatened him. I didn't threaten him. I told him what would have happened if he had said that at the Redmond's Club in 1967. That's just, just a plain fact. They'd have taken you out and strung you up. Well, they they threw me out. Yeah. There were several players at the table who told them, said, you shouldn't throw Dickie out. You should throw the other guy out. But, you know, I guess what he said, you draw it out on me, old man. I guess, you know, What's wrong with that? Well, to me, that's disrespectful and not becoming of a poker player to say that to me. Why doesn't he just bet me and let me throw my hand away and take the pot? Mm. That's what I'd have done. I'd have bet him. After he threw his hand away, I'd have taken the pot. And that's it. You don't you don't say those kind of things. That's my opinion. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Is there anything... But I lost it. Don't worry. I lost it. <laughs> Is there anything you think has changed for the better, you know, for, from the era when you started playing to... Uh, to the way that the games go now? Are, are there things you like better about the current poker climate? Things that I like better. Well, the only thing that I like better would be the only thing that could be better is that there's more people playing. I mean, I mean that's good for the casinos. That's good for everything. They make more money. The rake-off's higher. Do I think anything's better? I think it's better that more people are playing because you get you know a fluctuation of players some of them are probably amateurs and some of them, you know, are good, better for the game than others. I'm trying to think if there's anything better about the poker. I guess having the dealer is better. Having the shufflers is better. Of course, these shufflers, a question mark on them too. But I think, I think that, uh, there's not much better, but I would say that having the dealer and having the shufflers is probably the biggest difference along with the the influx of players. Um, that makes it better. I mean, every, every, after uh, Moneymaker won that World Series and all that, and the Internet got the poker and everything, poker's changed. I mean, I learned how to play poker at the Redmonds by losing every single day of whatever money I had, or every time I had any money, I'd go down there. That's where I learned to play. Now they learn to play by getting, getting lessons and getting on the Internet. And everybody tells them, you know, don't come in with that ace jack up front because you'll wind up getting broke. Well, you know what? I mean, I didn't know that ace jack wasn't any good up front till I got broke about 50 times. <laughs> I mean, I had to learn by Bob Hooks popping my ass or James Elders popping me up and I get me an ace or jack out there and go all the way and I never, you know, I was dead. But, or either they had ace, king or better. Uh, I didn't learn it. I learned it by losing my money. They learn it now on the internet. They learn it with these people giving them lessons and they tell them. I saw something on the internet the other day. It said, if you want to improve your game and save money, it said, you know, all kinds of, in limit poker, we all know that you don't come in up front with little cards. We know it's a big card game. You know, you if you if you limp in up there with queen nine and all that crap, you know, you're not going to win, especially in limit game. You're not going to win. No limit either, but in limit, you know, you've got to play solid cards. You've got to... And they tell them. They tell them right there on the Internet. They say, well, don't come in with that hand when you're playing nine or ten-handed. And, you know, they wise these people up, and they look down, and they got, you know... Jack nine, uh, 
lot of people think that's a good hand. I, I wouldn't give you five cents for that hand. Maybe on the button with a non-raised pot or free flop, maybe Jack nine. But uh, in the meantime, that, that you know, you learn differently now. These young kids, and not only do you learn, they've got better education than we had. I, you know, I mean, they some of these kids playing, they've been to college. I mean, I'm talking about college, college, uh, Harvard or Stanford or whatever. I mean, they they learn quicker, and especially if somebody wises them up, especially they learn quicker. They, and they tell them on there, you know, if Ace King is only really good when you can move in with it in the tournament, which is right. I mean, Ace King is, if you can move in with Ace King and somebody's got some money in the pot and you're down shorthanded to short money, Ace King's a pretty good hand to move in with. But in the meantime, they tell you, but Ace King ain't that good when you're up front, you know, and this and that. And if it comes an Ace out there and there's four or five people in the pod, might come Ace 10-3, you know, don't get crazy about your hand and all. I mean, they wise them up. Nobody wised us up except after we lose all our money. Uh, so uh, you've mentioned Sam Moon a couple times. Uh, those of us who are oh, yeah. poker history and televised poker fans will remember Sam Moon from being on ESPN. Uh, and, and, you know, he, he made the final table, the main event. One of the years that there's a, one of the years it was televised, there was like a highlight reel on ESPN. I think that was, you know, Bobby Baldwin was also at that table. Uh and he's he's a name that so Bobby comes won up the bit. tournament in nineteen seventy eight. Was that seventy eight? I I think so. I think so. If, Sam Moon's been sense. dead a long time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he he also he he appears in the biggest game in town. I think Sam Moon. Could you what can can you say a little bit more about him? Like what what was he like as a person? Oh, Sam was a great guy. Uh, you know, I wasn't personal friend of his, but I mean. You know, I played in his poker game a lot. I stayed at his house. I slept in his, uh, he had a guest room there with two little guest beds. And, you know, sometimes I would sleep there, especially if I was down there broke. Uh, I used to go down there with a guy named Bob Brooks. He's a famous old gambler in Texas. Not Bob Hooks, Bob Brooks. Um, Sam, I can't think of his wife's name, but I knew her. Uh, she used to cook the best food, but. I didn't know him personally, but he was a good guy. You know, he ran a poker game, and he... Uh, Sam became a big customer of mine in sports. Uh, after I moved to Vegas, and after I got a hold of money, and after I started really having a big biz business, he was a good guy as far as I know. If somebody says anything bad about him, I can't back it up, and I don't have anything to say but good things about him. He ran a good, honest poker game, as far as I know, and uh, paid everybody that won that I know, and he was a friend. Like, so you, you, you described going to a private game, getting broke in the game, and then sleeping in the guest room of the, of the game's organizer, uh, and it, it, it sounds like that wasn't a very remarkable thing. Would that have been a, a, a pretty ordinary occurrence? You know, I, I, I don't know about ordinary, no. I mean, I, I had been to poker games uh, around, you know, maybe I had to take a nap or something. I think I slept at Sam Moon's house two or three times, but, you know, I might have got broke and took a nap before I drove home or slept, you know, like that. I wouldn't say it was common, but um, there used to be a guy in Dallas that had poker games. Charlie Bissell was his name. I don't know. I can't remember if somebody used to, they used to have a place somebody could sleep or not. 
I wouldn't say it was common, but I would say it's more common than now. Uh, unless you've got a room at the casino and they charge you an arm and a leg for it, they don't give them away anymore. And uh, you said his wife was a good cook. Would you would you have been eating his wife's cooking at the table? I can't remember if we ate at the table or not. I don't think we could. I you know, I think we went in the kitchen and ate. Uh, you know that's. Uh, I can't remember if, they, if if we ate at the table or not. But I remember going into the kitchen and she had great food there. I mean. Yeah. You know, you're talking about over 45 years ago, so. Sure, sure, sure. But Do I remember uh, if we ate at the table or not? I can't remember. Oh, yeah. But not I can where... tell you we drank. We drank at the <laughs> table. I didn't drink, but a lot of people drank. Uh, Speedy Myers drank. Uh, there was a guy named Tippy Toe Joe who drank all the time. I mean, uh, Bobby Hoff drank. I mean, yeah, there was people who drank, but I don't remember if we ate or not. I think we went in the kitchen is to my best recollection. Sure. I, it's, it's, uh, you know, where is, is less interesting, but I've, I've played in a bunch of private games and, and they're usually there, you know, either there's just a stack of candy bars somewhere or else you, you order takeout and uh, somebody goes down to the street to fetch it. I've never, never had anybody's, uh, never had anybody's wife cook for me. Certainly. <laughs> well, that, 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 in those days they cooked and they cooked. Charlie Bissell used to have a poker game and his wife cooked, um, Good food also, because uh, I, I, I didn't play too much, and I staked a bunch of people in it. But, uh, no, in those days, the poker game had food. Now, some games had better food than others. No, we, my best recollection, you know, they, uh, Walter Threadgill had a poker game, and his wife, Norma, he, she made food. No, we ate, we ate good food at the poker games, uh, as best of my recollection, most of the people had people cooking. But we're uh, probably running short on time. So, John, if you wanted to uh, jump in with some of yours. Just a couple. Did you play much with Titanic Thompson, and, and what was he like? Yes, I played with Titanic Thompson. He was uh, just a... <laughs> what was he like? Titanic was a good old guy. He was, you know, he was old when I met him, uh, which was probably in the middle of 60s he was old then and I was just a kid, you know, I wasn't even 21 years old. Titanic, uh, was a legendary guy. I mean, he was more of a con man and a, and a, uh, artist of, uh, propositions than anything. I mean, he'd sit there at the table and make you propositions to bet on. Uh, you know, he was a computer in himself. If you want to call that, we didn't have computers then, but Titanic was a good guy. I, how well I knew him was, you know, I knew him. I played poker with him many a time down at the Redmond's Club. I think he passed away. I don't remember what year, but it wasn't, you know, he, he's been dead a long time. But I did know Titanic uh, from playing poker at the Redmond's and pool. He used to come out to Cotton Bowling Palace uh, when I was hustling pool out there, and he, he would play pool a little bit. He was a what? What did they? He was what they call a proposition man. He he liked to shoot, you know, do propositions. Uh, I heard a story about him one time. I don't know if it's true or not, but I heard a story that he was at a lake, and it was a bunch of people having a picnic or something. And uh, I don't know if this is true, but I heard it, and that uh. He bet somebody, they were having, they had a toothpick, said, can you throw the toothpick across the lake? 
and the guy picked up the toothpick and threw it. And of course, it fell down in front of him. And I heard the Titanic had a toothpick with an olive on it. He threw it all the way across the lake, and the guy had to pay him. I, I, now, I don't know if that's true or not, but I heard that. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the prop story I always remember with Titanic Thompson is he bet somebody he could throw a, a, a bag of golf clubs over a house. And uh, it turned out he had like a long strap and he just sort of wound up the way uh, like an Olympic hammer thrower would and, and threw yeah. the, the, the bag over the house that way. Do you know if that story is true? You know what? I don't know if any of the stories are true about <laughs> Titanic, but I can tell you this much. He was a character. Yeah. He, you know, that's like saying, are the stories true about Jack Strauss? Well, the ones that I know that I witnessed are true, but are they all true? No. I mean, is the story about the golf clubs true? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know for sure if the olive is true, but it sounds like, it, you know, it could happen. I mean, if you, if you put an olive on the toothpick, the lake wasn't that wide. I mean, you might, you know, and, and if you throw it over there, I mean, it's like Amarillo Slim one time. He, I heard a story that he was playing poker uh, in uh, Dallas, and, uh, you know, he used to play down there, and he, he, he got a ride to Amarillo. And, uh, you know, he used to ride, I, I don't know, and I heard that he bet the guy how far Amarillo was, and he had had somebody, he had had some people go out and pick up the sign and paint a different a mileage, you know, in those <laughs> days. In those days, you looked at the, at the uh, you know, the mileage sign, Amarillo, 85 miles. I think he bet the guy that gave him, a, a, you know, a, a ride, well, how far do you think Amarillo is? And the guy said, oh, it's 65 miles, and, uh, I mean, Amarillo said, no, it's 85 and the guy said, well, I'll bet. And Amarillo said, okay, I'll bet the next sign we come to says 85. And sure enough, Amarillo had some guys run out there and, and paint the sign differently. And then after they got by the sign, they went back and unpainted it. And I, I don't know if that's true, but I heard it. Yeah. Yeah. T.A. Yeah. Preston, Amarillo. Yeah. It's, uh... But do I know if they're true or not? No, I don't. So you said you said you'd hustled pool. What, what form of pool would that have been? I played mostly nine ball. You know, I played, I started playing pool when I was about 14. At one time, it was my life ambition to be a world champion, but, you know, I got to be a pretty good pool player. To, to describe my pool, actually, I used to hang around, not hang around, but I knew a guy named Utley Puckett, and he was a old pool hustler. He lived in Fort Worth, and he, he would send me to what they call scores. In other words, i tell you, Nate, I used to play pool. Anybody's name that you knew, I couldn't beat them. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wasn't that good, but I was good enough to beat most hometown heroes. You know I mean? Yep. It's like a poker game. You go into a poker game, and there's 10 amateurs in it. You're more likely to beat it than if you go in there, and there's 10 uh, pros in it. Mm -hmm. So I used to go to these... Uh, places, you know, and Dudley Puckett would tell me, go to here, and there's a guy there that plays pretty good, but you can beat him, you know, and limit around for a few days and play on your thumb and try to get the bet up to 20 a game instead of $2 a game, and, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, I was a pool player, but, you know, like I said, anybody's name that you knew, I probably couldn't beat them, but I could probably beat the local champ, you know, if you didn't know his name, but the, the real good pool players, I couldn't beat the best players in the country. No. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you've mentioned craps, you've mentioned pool and, uh, 
to be clear for our listeners, like you came up at a time when almost anybody who was serious about poker would have been serious about gambling also. Is that like, like, like generally like there, there wasn't, there wouldn't have been many people who, who played poker seriously, who did not gamble generally. Right. That's a tough question. I mean, most of the people that I, that I knew, they played poker. I, I don't remember, you know, most of the, most of the people in Texas played poker and the, the ones that I played with, that's mostly what they played. What they gambled on on the side, I don't know a lot about. I mean, out in Las Vegas, the time we were shooting craps, when Speedy came up, that's a different deal, you know. Uh, I don't think they played craps all the time at home, but uh, there were crap games. I mean, there were blackjack games, you know, that kind of stuff. But the po- the people that I played with mostly were poker players. Mm-hmm. and mo- Mostly just poker that I remember... What they played mostly was poker. Well, again, we don't want to keep you longer than, than you intended, but... Uh, uh, I've John, got plenty of time. That's all i got is time. I just don't know how much. <laughs> That's all yeah. any of us have is time, but we just don't know how much. Very true. Very true. John, do you want to I've read another I've got plenty from? of time. Yeah, so uh, John, John wanted to ask about sort of where, where the bad players who came to Las Vegas would usually go. Like, would they want to play deuce to seven, or would they want to play no limit, or, or something else? Like, what, what form of poker do you remember as, as the one that drew in the bad players? Well, I mean, they played hold'em mostly. Deuce to seven, no, they didn't play deuce to seven, those, those kind of people. They once in a while, but no, they would play hold'em. Uh, Limit or no limit, mostly hold them. That I that I remember, the deuce to seven was just a group of mostly professional players, uh, and most of the time we played high. I mean, there might have been some small deuce games around the horseshoe during the World Series. But we played smaller, but you know, in those days, to be honest with you, I don't even know where there is a deuce to seven game. If, if you know of one, please tell me where it is because I don't know of one. No limit, one draw. I, I don't know of one. Yeah, and neither well, they, is anybody that I talk to. The, there are tournaments at the World Series every year. Uh, I've played yeah, it yeah. in casinos, but only just when a game shows up or as part of a mix. Uh, it's it's like I've played. I remember playing like a fifty hundred limit mix, and one of the games in that yeah. mix was uh, five ten no limit deuce with a cap. I think. Um, yeah. Yeah, but that's but. You know, just just a straight no limit deuce game. Um, I've played it small online back in the day, but uh, unfortunately, I, I I do not know any any small online U.S. friendly no limit deuce game anymore. I'd Andrew, like to play in one if there is one. Yeah, me too, Andrew. Do, do you know of any? Uh, not only do I not know of any, but I'm fairly confident there are not any. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you a story about that. Yeah. I think John may remember this. I don't know if he does. Uh, at the at the uh, Foxwoods Casino, when I first started hanging around there, I used to put the put it on the board. Deuce to seven, no limit. DC was my name. We never got one person on the list. Not one. Now you know, and I did the same thing at the Borgata. Not one. <laughs> to be honest with you, I don't know if anybody. There's not too many people alive. I don't think. That played a mini deuce to seven. I'm talking about no limit one draw. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about the three card stuff and the limit. I'm talking about no limit one draw. I don't know where there's a game now in the world. Uh, it's, but I doubt it, it there is. 
it's interesting because they have the tournaments every year. I mean, partly just for historical because of for for historical reasons at the World Series. And mm. um, I mean, it's a it's a poker players poker game. And I mean, I love the game, and a, a, a lot of serious poker players really are drawn to the game and love it. It's a beautiful game. And I think what Barry Greenstein said is it's uh, it's got a lot of play in it. It's a simple game, but uh, almost all your decisions matter. Um, there's a lot of like really subtle stuff you can do with bet sizing. It's just a, it's a, it's a very, it's a very nice and, and subtle game. Uh, so he's what's a good player, Barry. Yeah. Yeah. So y- these tournaments are full of sort of serious young players and some of them, like do these really extensive computer simulations and they study the game intensely to play it once a year. <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, uh, but to be honest with you, those people that play in the world series of poker, they, they go out there. A lot of that is ego. I, I think they want to play in those tournaments just to win it. I mean, uh, I think there's probably a lot of people who play in the deuce seven tournament that really, if you had a deuce to seven game in Dallas, Texas, 10 and 25, no limit, they wouldn't go play in it but they'll play at the World Series in a tournament because they want to win it and get their name up there. I mean, I, to be honest, I think that's some of the reason they play. Oh, the World Series of Poker, they get all those people out there uh, that really are just going because it's called the World Series of Poker. That's really why they go and really why they play in a lot of those tournaments. They don't play at home as much. Like I said, if we had a deuce game, I mean, I'd like to start one somewhere. I don't, I don't know if those guys would come and play or not. Mm-hmm. You know, but I think they play out there because they want to get their name in the limelight a little bit. I mean, that's just my opinion. I could be wrong, but I think you're always going to get more players at the World Series of Poker than you would anywhere. Yeah. No, that's right. That's right. Um, yeah, but I, mean, you, I, I believe that to be true. Yeah. But I, I, I was uh, I was surprised at the amount of study that goes into the game for how little, like the ratio of 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 computation and sort of research effort that goes into the game to how often it's spread uh, is probably higher in that form of poker than any other. <laughs> because, uh, people study I mean, hard. There's a lot of play to that game. Uh, yeah. But yeah. it's like any other game, Nate, uh, or Andrew, who am I speaking to? Uh, it's like it's any Nate. other game. If you are playing deuce to seven <clears throat> and the lineup is, you know, me and Billy Baxter and Doyle Brunson and uh, Stewie Unger and Chip Reese and those kind of players, you know, it, it's it's like any poker game. If you've got some people in there, you know, that aren't professional players and really don't understand deuce to seven, you know, and they don't know that, you know, drawing it two, three, five, six ain't no good uh, unless you get in for free. And if they know that, you know, a 10 ain't no good either, or even a nine for all your money. If they, if they don't know that you'd rather have them in the game as other players. So it's like any game yet again, I believe there's a little bit more skill in any game where there's no exposed cards. Now that's my opinion. I could be wrong, but I think that a game where there's no exposed cards has more skill to it. Now you may disagree, but I, I, I've been told a five card draw high has got a lot of, a lot of skill. I've never played it, but, yeah. They tell me and uh, that 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 five card draw, you know, that they used to play back in the day years ago. Yeah, that's a dead game too. I don't guess they play that anywhere. I I, I played some five ten, uh, five ten no limit five card draw at the win back in the day. I mean, like a decade ago now. And there there's a lot of 
That's a tough game. That's a tough game. It's uh, there's a lot there's there's a lot of play to it. There's a lot of play to it, and yeah. uh, well, there's a lot of play to Deuce to seven also five card. Yeah, uh, especially if, they, if somebody doesn't know the game. I mean, you know, a lot of people think if you got two, three, four, seven to draw at, you're not even the favorite to beat a jack. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, you you know, you're not really you know. You know, if you put all your chips in, I mean, uh, if you catch a jack, I mean, you're probably going to win it. But, I mean, ace, king, or a queen, or a pair, I mean, and there was a lot of people played the game. Some people, you know, they don't. Deuce to seven is a game that if you're lost, you're dead. Mm-hmm. In Hold'em, you can have a ace, queen against two aces, and it can come two queens and a deuce, and, you know, you might break a guy or whatever. But in No Limit Deuce, if you're lost, if you don't understand what you have in your hand, you can't win. Yeah. Now that's my opinion. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's that's one reason you don't see the game a lot is because bad players just they get crushed, they lose everything immediately. Uh, when I think of yeah, games well, like that, yeah. when I think of games like that, stud high low with no qualifier is high on my list. It's um, you know, it's a game that pros like, except that bad players just lose immediately and and therefore you you almost never see the game anymore are 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 there forms of poker i might not know about or or have top of mind um that are like that that you can think of like games that died out because the edge for for a good player was too high well first of all you know a lot more about poker nowadays than i do i mean what i know about poker is old Uh, the only game that i can think of is deuce to seven is one of them but Deuce to Seven was played by a group of guys in the South. I mean, I, I don't know. You know, I, I, I there was limited players, but and most of them were pros. I guess five card stud uh, is no longer played. You know, uh, uh, Sarge Ferris, uh, Freddie Ferris was his name. Was a great stud player. Uh, Bill Boyd was a good player. I don't know. There was a guy named Blondie Forbes from uh, down south in Texas. He was he was a good stud player. There was another guy named Red Ashley uh, from Louisiana, from Leesville, Louisiana. He was a great stud player. Um, I, I I would think that those games are dead, as far as I know. That those are the two games mostly: deuce to seven draw, one limit, one draw, no limit, five card draw, stud, and and five stud are about dead, right? I mean, yeah. Are there any games of those? Those are the ones that I can think of that are dead. Yeah, that's it. five card studs. That's that's a great answer. I remember reading about that, and uh, you know, I've I've almost never played it, and I've never played it in a casino. So that's uh, when you say five card draw, yeah. are you talking uh, limit or no limit? No limit. Uh, yeah, yeah. Five card draw, all you know, like deuce to seven, no limit. I don't think they play that anywhere. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Certainly no regular game that I know of. That's uh... no, and I don't think they play play five stud anywhere where where you get four, you know one up, four up and one down like his Cincinnati kid when he made the middle buster on the end. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, which was a phony ass pot I've ever seen. Nobody would play that pot, but yeah. um, that's a movie. <laughs> no, I, I don't know of any other games. I mean, uh, Hold'em and, and Deuce to Seven. You know, deuce to seven, the, the five card drawing the five stud. I mean, they don't raz. They play raz around the country, don't they? Around places. 
Sure. It's it's hard to find just a straight Raz game, but it's in a lot of mixes. And uh, We used yeah. to play some Raz down, down mainly at the Ambets. We played at the Redmonds. Yeah. Uh, there was a guy that, down at the Redmonds used to play. His name was Cap Gordon. Uh, real good man. Uh, he loved to play Raz, and we built a game around him for years. He played, mm-hmm. you know, but I guess they used to play that game at the Stardust back in the day. I don't know if they played anywhere or not. You do, not me. <laughs> I don't know about that. You know, you know, you're up on the poker. I'm not really up on it. I mean, uh, uh, you know, I, not like you. <laughs> I wouldn't say I'm up on it. I would say I, I'm up on. Well, I mean, you're, men. you're, you know, what's going on around the country. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I don't keep up with what's going on around the country. All I can keep up with is what I hear or. You know, I look at you know I look at Las Vegas news and that kind of stuff. But let me ask you a question. Yep. Would you bet me that they play the World Series of Poker in, at the Rio Hotel like they played it the last ten years, or would you say no? That's a great question. I mean, it's we talked about is this you know it's it's just a matter of timing. I think there's a good chance it doesn't go. Also, a pretty good chance it does go. Um, poof. Andrew, what? Yeah, the world it, he, Andrew probably knows the the. State I don't of see discussion. how it could go. I don't yeah. see how they could have it. That, that's the way I'm leaning. I don't see how I mean, they're they're still running satellites for it, but I think that's more a, a matter of um, greed. If we're being uncharitable, I, I think it's uh, uh, unlikely to go. Yeah, I I don't I don't see how the Rio is even contemplating. What are they waiting on? I mean, you know, poker is poker. This is bigger than poker. I mean. Mm-hmm. What we're going through now as a nation, I mean, poker is one of the worst things. The World Series of Poker liable to have you. They're liable to have to open a hospital room next door to the tournament. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They can't have that tournament. I'm talking about they can't have it. All those people from around the world, they may not even be allowed to fly in here. Yeah, sure. let alone sure. sharing chips and sharing cards. I mean, the Rio's being and... greedy. I mean, I think it's. I think it's just greed. I'm really. They probably make so many millions off of that tournament that they hate to cancel it. Now that's I'm sure what that, I think is the truth. I, I, I'm sure. I, I I think everything you say is right. I would just say that the cost to them, because if there's no World Series, there's nothing else either. So it's not like they gain a lot by canceling the World Series and scheduling a rodeo there. Like there's no rodeos. There, like if there's not a World Series, it's a hospital or it's nothing, right? So right. If, yeah. So so my perspective is like in one of the good case. In one of the good cases, like let's say in three months, this is mostly under control. There's not a lot of downside to them for hosting, say, just the main event in August. I mean, I don't know what what plans they have for the Rio in August, but you know, arguably, it's it's not much. And uh, if they if they just throw down a ten thousand dollar tournament, call it the main event, have it in August, like that seems quite possible to me. But I'm not the one who knows a lot about the organizational structure of the Rio or, or, or Harris or any of that. Well, like, the Rio is owned by Harris, but I mean, uh, I, 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 the only thing I can say is there's a possibility that they could delay it till September, maybe yeah. August. Yeah. And then try to host it then. But I, I'll tell you, I have a different opinion. This looks to me like it's a, that this is, might be a life changer. We might have sure. to change the way we live our lives. I mean, absolutely. Gatherings of all these people may be over. Uh, yep. they may play football with no with no fans and they might play baseball with no fans 
in August or September or maybe July, but the, the gatherings of a lot of people, can you imagine how risky it is at the World Series of Poker? You've got people flying in from all over Europe and everywhere, yeah. and people yeah. coming and staying in the rooms and eating the food and holding the glasses at the table and picking up the cards. Yeah. Why and, they and, can't and these have it. Never, these are people who never wash their hands either. Right. May the 27th is when it's due to start. Yeah. I don't know what they're waiting on to cancel it. Why, why are they even teasing people about it? Yeah. I mean, yeah. uh, and furthermore, if they have it, how many people are going to go? Yeah. Yeah. If this thing is not completely over and it doesn't like, look like it's going to be completely over, it may be better, but you've got thousands and thousands of people going in a room, sitting next to one another. I mean, cocktail waitresses bring, uh, yeah. I don't know. I think that, I think they're just being greedy and they don't want to admit that they have to cancel it. That's what I really think. I mean, I think now you want to know the truth of what I think. I think that's the case. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there's certainly got to cancel it. There's, there's not going to be a tournament with 5,000 players on June 1st at the Rio. That's for sure. That, that I'm very sure about. <laughs> that's uh, How, what's odds. If, if you'll lay me a thousand to one, I'll bet you the Rio's not open June the 1st. You want to lay me a thousand to one? I bet it's not even open. That's. Nah, uh, I'll no. take a thousand to one, and I'll bet the Rio Hotel is not open August, <laughs> June first. Yeah, I, in fact, I'll take. You can lay me five hundred to one. <laughs> no, no. Well, no, I mean, no, really, that. what's the odds? Yeah. I mean, maybe it's not five hundred to one, but there's a good chance that they'll be closed. Oh, very good chance. A very good chance. I mean, it may not be closed, but no, I, mean, I think even even if a number of businesses are uh, are reopening, casinos are, are forever, as you say. You know, people coming from all over the place. It's a very non-essential service. There's a lot of uh, sharing of um, durable surfaces going on. And I, I think casinos will be among the last places that get. Uh, I mean, I guess other than the economic incentive to to reopen them, but. Um, yeah. And especially yes. the, all the people. I mean, hell, they're talking about on TV. They talk about the, these these experts don't have more than ten people in the same room. Don't. Yeah. They're telling you not even to go visit your grandkids and hug. I mean, you're telling me that the Rio is going to have the World Series of Poker. I say that all they are is greedy right now, and they're not telling the truth that they can't host this tournament the way they've hosted it because of the virus. That's what I believe. But I believe they're. They're holding out and hoping for a miracle. That's what I believe, because they want that money. Mm -hmm. I may be wrong, and they may have a cure tomorrow, but if they don't, if this thing keeps going like these experts say it might go, I'll take a 200 to 1, you can lay me, I'll bet the Rio's not open June 1st. Uh, I'll take 200 to 1. It's shorter than that. It's shorter than that. <laughs> well, I don't yeah. know what the price is, but what is it, 10 to 1? I'd take five to one. I mean, there's just a pretty good yeah, chance. Yeah, maybe it may be even money, Nate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I like. I wanted a thousand to one, but I'd take a hundred. <laughs> In fact, I'm not sure that uh, Bellagio or any of those hotels will be open June the first. I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. It's. Uh, I, mean, I don't know about the little casinos, but uh, those big ones. You know, that's that might be as bad as a cruise ship. Yeah, or or a nursing home, that a World Series of Poker if they have it the way they've had it, you're on top of each other in there. Yeah, uh, you drink the, you, the the cocktail waitress takes those glasses back to the, 
I mean, they'd have to do away with glasses. They'd be all paper cups. You talk about contagious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think the Rio's holding out. I think they've got to cancel it. Yeah. That's my opinion. I'm probably going to be wrong. <laughs> but so, I, I think they'll have to cancel it. Uh, a self-interested question. While people are, are sheltering in place, who are, who are some uh, old-time gamblers we should talk to and get on the show? Uh, old-time gamblers? Well, I mean, that, that would be Doyle. I guess Billy Baxter. Uh, if they're, I don't know what they're doing. I haven't spoken to him in years, but um, you know Jack Binion, uh, Bobby Baldwin. Uh, I think he's going to be uh, CEO of that new casino in Vegas if it gets open. Mm-hmm. Uh, who else? Old timers. I mean, yeah, you mentioned Sam Hooks. Uh, Bob Hooks. He's dead. Sam Moon's dead. You mentioned uh, Crandall Addington earlier. Is that, is that Crandall right? Addington would be one if you can find him. Yeah. Mike Cox would be the one to talk to about that. That's, uh, that's Mike that's lives in Austin, Texas. Crandall lives in San Antonio. That's 80 miles from Austin to San Antonio. Uh, I heard Crandall was in a nursing home, but he's not brain dead. I mean, as far as I know, he'd be a good one to talk to. Um, I'm trying to think who else... Uh, what do you call old timers? I mean, Johnny <laughs> Chan. I mean, he Johnny Chan wouldn't be that old a timer. I mean, he's a little bit older timer. But what do you call old timer? I mean, uh, it was uh, a it was a hastily chosen word. It's uh, you've mentioned some people. I mean, I definitely heard of Crandall Addington. Um, yeah, I, I, I had not heard of yeah uh, people who have seen a lot of poker history, whom I might not have heard of, and who might be willing to talk to us. Um, Mike Cox would be one of them. Carl McKelvey would be one of them. Jimmy Ornsby would be one of them. Danny Hunsucker would be one of them. Sager Hunsucker. Um, um, uh, they're alive that I know of. They haven't died. Uh, most of the ones you're talking about that you wouldn't know that I know might, might be passed away. Uh, um, who else around there? I mean, they're all gone. I mean, uh, like most of them are gone. If you're talking about old timers, uh, uh, there's a guy in That's... Odessa named D.K. Jones. He he used to play around there in Austin. I mean, uh, in Houston. Uh, let's see, they're all gone. I mean, uh, the way you describe it to me, I mean, uh, would you call Johnny Chan an old timer? Oh, sure. But you know Johnny uh, Chan. I mean, I I know who he is. Certainly, it's. Uh... Yeah, well, I mean, he would be one. I think he's living, and uh, he's not that old. I think he's younger than me, I think. Uh, uh, So I don't know many more people that you're talking about that you don't know. I mean, you know all the new players. I mean, all these kids. I mean, actually, I guess Phil Helmut's not a kid anymore. He's probably middle-aged now. But uh, Daniel, what's his name, Negrano? You know him, too. I mean, all these people you know. You ask me about people that you don't know. Most of them are dead that I know or that I knew. You got Doyle right there, and you got Billy Baxter right there. You got uh, Jack Binion right there. I mean, uh, trying to think who else is alive. I mean, uh, uh, who else would be alive? I mean, maybe if you could mention some, I mean, uh, 
I, I can't think of many more that you that you said you wouldn't know. You know all the people that I that I see on the net and all that and TV. All the you know all them. Right. Yeah. A- Andrew, do you have more questions? No, I just want to uh, thank thank Dick for his time and and thank John again for uh, yeah for for encouraging us to do this and, and arranging and everything. It was uh, it was great talking to you guys. Yeah, it was an absolute I want to pleasure. answer. I want to answer a question that John wrote oh, me. Please, yeah. Can I do please that? Please do. Please, yes. John wrote me a question on the internet. He wanted to know if I knew anything about Frank Rosenthal being an informant. And my answer to him is absolutely not. I, I, I never heard anything like that. Never thought anything like that. Frank Rosenthal. First of all, he didn't wear no pink suits all around like they show in that movie. He came to the swimming pool all the time to see his daughter, Stephanie, swim. But that was her name, Stephanie. She was the greatest eight and under swimmer that ever lived in the state of Nevada. He watched swim practice. He wore shorts or pants. He didn't wear no pink suits. And he was a gentleman. And I, I, he, you know, he, he had the, the title at the start as to be in the uh, entertainment director, but in reality, he ran the sports book. And John, uh, he was not the best handicapper that I ever knew. The best handicapper that I ever knew was Bob Martin. But Bob Martin did it on his own. There's no such thing anymore as doing it on your own. The computer changed everything. Uh, there's no one man that can make the line anymore and put it up and let people bet. They, they have help, and they stick all that information in a computer. They've got help nowadays. We didn't have that kind of help back in the day. Frank Rosenthal was a, mainly his best game, they tell me, was uh, pro football. My relationship with Frank, John, was at the swimming pool with Stephanie, was swimming for the Sandpiper swim team. And then when he moved out of Vegas after that car incident, at Marie Callender's, they said Tony Roma's, but it was Marie Callender's, and she moved to Mission Viejo. He took her over there because Mission Viejo had the best swim program in the country. And I used to go over there all the time and meet and see Frank at swimming meets. All we did was talk about swimming and stand on the deck. I mean, in Las Vegas, we knew what was going on. We saw his name in the paper all the time. We knew him and Spilatro were this and that, whatever, but we never talked about it. Uh, Stephanie swam on the swim team and my daughter Courtney swam with her they were about a year apart but they swam in the same age group for about a year and he was you know he he just uh, that's really what I knew him I knew he was you know the bookmaker to Stardust but I didn't talk to him about that Uh, but no the best handicapper I wished he was alive and wished he was about 1965 was Bob Martin but you can't do it anymore like that. You can't make lines like that anymore because there's too many people that got information from the computer and they stick it in there and they find out where you're wrong and they pop you. You can't do that anymore. Uh, bookmaking is completely different now. You know, the concept of it is the same, but there ain't no more Bob Martins. You know, there are no more Bob Martins. I'll tell you that. So that's the answer to that question, John. Frank Rosenthal was a gentleman. I never knew anything about anything like that. Wouldn't believe it if I heard it. 
my my relationship with him was mainly through swimming other than yeah i went to stardust and he was the boss and ha 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 but he wasn't really you know alan glick i think was was the boss but the rosenthal ran the sports book he was a good pro football handicapper he probably was a good handicapper but you got to remember something john in those days they might have had you know 20 teams they've got to handicap hundreds of teams now i mean the college basketball, I mean, when Liberty's playing Slippery Rock, how do you make a line on that? <laughs> you know, they don't, I can't explain it to you, but the whole thing, gambling's changed. I mean, and bookmaking may be the biggest change of all. You know, and they don't want to, you know, I, I don't want to get into it, but it, it's different. That's all I can tell you. A lot different. Well, we, uh, we really appreciate and, your show. And John also wanted to know, John asked me about where I used to get the line in the early 70s. Well, I used to get the line from a guy named Bobby Chapman or a guy named Ben Summers, who was my, Ben Summers was the first bookie I ever worked for. And they used to get it from Vegas. A guy by the name of Kenny Crying Kenny used to call it back to Texas from a pay phone. I mean, everything's different now. I mean, it's, you know, I used to open up early in the morning to a guy named E. Walker and Joe Snyder and those kind of guys, Lim Banker, and I could put the line up and get bets on both teams and all that. But nowadays, you got 500 kids looking at the line. They graduated from Harvard, and they dissect it, and they got all the information in it, and that's out of style. My days are over. You can't do that anymore. That's, that's it's history. Yeah, I was I was reading. So that's the, book. the answer to your question about Frank Rosenthal, John. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh no, I was say it's uh, much less important. I was reading a book with my with my son yesterday. He's a toddler, and we saw a picture of a phone booth, and he asked me what it was, mm -hmm. and I could not explain it to him in a way that he would understand. <laughs> Just simply could not. Um, so they don't have them much anymore. They have them at the airports once in a while. You see one. Yeah. Um, I used one the other night because my phone was dead, but. Uh, uh, they're not, uh, you know, I mean, that's another thing. We didn't have telephones back in those days, back in the 70s. I mean, we, I mean everything's different. I mean, yeah. I, I I don't know how to tell you, but it's a lot different than now. Yeah. Uh, I do. And look at the rake law. I mean, they, they, they rob you in these poker games. I mean, who would have ever thought the World Series of Poker would be getting what they get out of those tournaments? If Jack Benny, I mean, Benny Benny would roll over in his grave if he knew that. Yeah. yeah, I mean they'd roll over in their grave, and I can tell you one thing: they can all thank the Binions. There wouldn't be no World Series of Poker if it wasn't for them, you know. But the Rio has ruined it, in my opinion. But they've got a big audience. I mean, the internet and the TV and all that. They, you know, they've got all the big audience, so they get to rob everybody. Now I might have spoke out of line, but if there's a somebody who really knows, they'll say that I'm right. They take too much out of the rake at the World Series of Poker. Now, you think they do or they don't, Nate? Uh, it's a tough question. Um, they don't take so much that the games are unbeatable, and I'm grateful for that. Um, I'm talking about the tournaments. Yeah, they don't take so much that the tournaments are unbeatable, and I'm grateful for that. Um, if you win, I, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I'd rather they take less. I'd rather they take less. But like for me, it's the only thing I've ever known, right? So my first year at the World Series was the first year it was at the Rio. So uh, oh. it, it feels it feels like too much to me. But it also feels like just what it is, you know. Like I'd rather uh, I'd rather not pay 
eleven dollars for a sandwich either. You know, so I bring my own food, but that that's a different thing. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, I'd rather it not be that way, but um, you know, it's a little bit like uh, like in a cash game at a casino. You know, five dollars coming out of the pot. It's uh, people say it's too much, but it's the only thing I've ever played with. And for me, the question. The, the only question I ask myself is, you know, can I beat the game? Is it is it so much that I can't that I can't turn a profit? And uh, I'm talking about if, the tournaments only now. Yeah, yeah. And for the tournaments, the answer, well, let me ask you this question then. Yeah. If the same one thousand players met every year at the Rio, yeah, the same players every year, and there was no new money and no new people, yeah, who would have money after twenty years? Nobody but the Rio, right? I think. I think the best the best five ten percent would have money. You think so? What do you think? I'm talking about no new players, not flying in from all over the world. I'm talking about back in the day when we had the same people show up every year. Sure, but if you I mean, know, I don't think you can't charge that much. Yeah, I think most I think most people would be broke. I think most people would be broke. I think I think the best player. I, I think a strong player against a field of a thousand can can turn more than a 10 12 percent return uh you know how much luck do you think's in a tournament when they got eight thousand players how much luck do you think's in it a lot you think there's any luck a lot a lot yeah i remember john telling me one time he didn't play in tournaments years ago he didn't he didn't think it was a good investment well he's right yeah. but in the meantime we still playing them because we want to hit that big score yeah um, yeah. But I'm just saying they didn't even used to take money at the horseshoe out of the ten thousand dollar tournament. You just play. You didn't pay any any rake. And they gave us a buffet, free buffet and good food. Yeah. And yeah. a room if we needed it. I mean, it's all changed. I mean. Yeah, 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 yeah. You were. And I don't about think phones. it's changed for the better. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. You were talking about phones. Like I, I miss it being in a card room like before people had cell phones and somebody's wife would call and have him page and everybody would laugh at him like that that's a memory i miss you know <laughs> like that's uh... i can remember walking around casinos in vegas in the 60s late 60s every second there was somebody page page and mr johnson yeah page and mr smith i mean uh, it, 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 never mind it's just you know i i don't know if it's for the better or not in poker or sports but the best the, the best thing about it is probably is that there's more people involved. Yeah. I mean in in the Deuce to Seven tournament, the year I won it there was twenty players. Well and they were the best players in the country, but still twenty players. I mean, you know, a tournament was much easier to win with twenty players than with, you know, ninety or three hundred or whatever. And I, I think I you mean, have to keep I, that in I, mind I just, when, when you talk about the rake. You know, the, the a lot of players involved or a lot more players involved. That's largely the work that the tournament organizers are doing. I mean, that's the major service that they're providing is they're uh, hosting this big event and creating all the buzz around it. I mean, they are legitimately, I think, doing a lot more work and, and providing a lot more value than they were um even 20 years ago, let alone 30 or, or 40 years ago. So it, it doesn't seem entirely you're, wrong you're to right. me that, you're that right. you know, they're charging a bigger rate because they're they're bringing you a lot more than they used to. I can tell you this much: if they would have never invented the internet, and if MoneyMaker would have never won the tournament, poker wouldn't be the way it is today. Yeah, I think that's a safe bet. 
and they didn't put it on TV. Uh, I remember one time they put the World Series on TV. I'm not certain who was hosting it. Maybe Brent Musburger. I, I don't remember. They had it on the, some TV deal. Just the, just the main event and just the last table. And it was on a real short period of time. And then they had that, that scandal about the judge in Texas. And they quit, and they quit putting it on TV. If they hadn't invented the Internet and they didn't invent telephones and they didn't have Moneymaker win it, and they didn't have it on TV, poker would not be near what it is today. I'm not saying poker is good today. It's a lot different. There's a lot more people playing it. But I'm not certain that that's for the best. That's just my opinion. But Thank you a, so much, uh, Dick and, and John, for, for taking the time. It's been an absolute pleasure, Dick. Thank you so much. My pleasure. John, I'll speak to you soon. Tapping on my window of a car the the fair passage of a bill and who will sign us into law I know you won't you won't you won't you won't will you you won't you won't you won't you won't will you you won't you won't you won't you won't you won't sign I drafted up a beautiful contract My pleasure. John, I'll speak to you soon. Sounds good, y'all. Sounds good, yeah. Talk to you soon. Bye.